What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and this is the Chondrocast, the podcast about green tree pythons and the people that keep them. Enjoy the show. Cast. Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, joined by Mr. David Brahms, Specialty Enclosure Designs, and our guest this evening is Ian Bissell of S&J Reptiles, the man that I have been trying to pin down on this show for a long time, but he's here now. Oh, well, we finally made it happen. Yeah. Glad we could do that. So, uh... Well, there's no, uh, there's no carpet fest or chondro fest to keep you busy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. My travel <laughs> schedule is wide open right now until August. So I am, I've got <laughs> more time on my hands than I usually do. No, no carpet fest, no chondro fest, no Tinley, no Arlington, no reptile shows of any kind, no work travel, no personal travel. Yeah. How is that going from being everywhere all the time to being stuck at home? It's uh, it's an adjustment, you know. Normally for work, I travel it probably averages out about fifty percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So being home that much is is a change. I haven't been on an airplane since oh, I, I think early February. I haven't had to rent a car. I haven't slept in a hotel. Um, my credit card bill has gone way down on a monthly basis, <laughs> and uh, and my snakes have never been more pampered because. Now I get to go through them every single day. Normally it's, you know, go through them, don't see them for a few days, go through them again, and I have to, you know, rely on, on help here at the house or kind of autopilot. So I feel like in, in some regards they've never been more pampered. At the same time, they're probably getting annoyed, and they're like, just leave me alone. Why are you looking in here all the time? <laughs> <laughs> so, But it does. it has given me a chance with the collection to tinker with some things, to move some animals around, to do some uh, what I would call like l- not routine cleaning, but like deep cleaning. Yeah. You're like, oh, let's let's tear this rack apart and mm-hmm. let's tear all the perches apart and let's let's reset this rack basically. Yeah. Um, you know, tinker with some of the tools and technology I'm using. It's one of the things I I hope we'll talk about a little tonight and just really get some things dialed in and. I, I think that it's also shown me that even just being gone a few days at a time, you know, like in the last six or seven weeks, I haven't had a single bad shed, like not one. And normally, not that that's a regular occurrence, but, you know, if, if you miss the, the window when they need that extra hydration, mm-hmm. sometimes you get a bad shed. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely can see that being on top of every little thing definitely you know i'm able to to tweak some things but at the same time it's also like watching water boil because when you're away from them for a few days and you come back then you notice things have changed and uh you know i'm not seeing that 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 phenomena is not there because i'm i'm looking at them every single day but uh but it's also kind of an exciting time too because with my travel schedule, a lot of times I miss things. I miss the ovulation. I miss the prelay shed. Mm-hmm. I get all stressed out because inevitably uh, the snakes 
somehow have a copy of my Outlook calendar and they know to lay <laughs> or hatch on like the exact day, like, oh, he's got to leave for the airport at 11 o'clock. So we will start laying eggs at like 1049. <laughs> Today's the day. <laughs> exactly. So that's been kind of cool to be able to actually be here to see some things that, believe it or not, like I've hardly ever in all the years of breeding have I witnessed an ovulation because I'm usually not here. Um, yeah. I'm usually stressed out about egg laying because I'm not. Am I going to be here? Am I not going to be here? Yeah. What days are going to fall on? So, so yeah, it's taken some adjustment, but uh, but it's been good. It's it's weird though because my wife's home from work, my kids are home from school. I'm not traveling, so it's it's a real adjustment across the board. And the kids are, like I said before, I think are are getting cabin fever. But at the same time, that also means that they're poking their head in here more. What are you doing? What, what cages are you cleaning? Can I hold that snake? And mm-hmm. what are you doing over here? Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but my wife ordered them a green screen, and they're they're doing their own little mini uh, reptile video segment. Oh, cool! <laughs> they um, they're big fans of of a number of these people on YouTube kids that do a lot of the educational videos, so they like to emulate them. But they want to do it with their snakes, and uh, I'll catch them doing things, and I'll be like, "Who are you talking to?" And they're like, "Oh, we're talking to our fans." Like, fans? Like, how many? How many fans do you have? Yeah, what are we talking here? <laughs> so it's uh, so it's kind of cool, it, you know. So I'm home. I get to spend more time with the kids. I get to spend more time with the snakes. I'm still able to work from home, so so that's a good thing. And uh, yeah, so it's just adjustments. Justin, it sounds like you're you're still working like normal, but David, are, are you home also? Yeah, I'm mostly home. My job, um, you know, it, it, they consider it essential, so I'm periodically have to go in, but for the most part, you know, staying away from from people and everything. Only go in when absolutely needed. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. So I, I don't want to get us off topic or anything, but I do have to ask you. I don't mean to put you on the spot. But I saw that you were doing kind of a cool thing where you had joined other 3D printing hobbyists and you were doing some parts to help with some COVID relief efforts. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all, but I thought that was really cool. And, you know, I I just want to give you a shout out for that. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, yeah, you know how there's shortages everywhere for um, PPE uh, equipment, you know, for people in hospitals and stuff. And um, so they're recruiting people who can help manufacture some of the the um, easier to make components that they would use like face shields and masks and things like that and um, there's you know a bunch of groups who have formed uh, to uh, kind of coordinate manufacturing some of these things so I can make um, you know like visors or you know the um, face shields uh, using the 3d printers that I have where you can manufacture the component that actually fits on your head then you get like a uh, a mylar a sheet of mylar like you would use for like an overhead projector and that acts as like the face shield mm-hmm. so um right. you know you just marry those two together and and uh and then just donate them to uh you know the local hospitals that's basically what we've been doing wow well i mean that's that's really cool and very commendable probably uh provides more feedback and, and give back to the community than making snake perches right yeah <laughs> although that's fun too <laughs> <laughs> just a much smaller potential audience that's fun too. right exactly wow i saw that you were doing that i just i thought that was really cool so you know kudos to you guys thanks yeah 
You know what's been interesting about this whole lockdown thing, though, is I have a bunch of cop buddies, and they're saying the number of domestics is shooting up like crazy because everyone's oh no kidding everyone's stuck at home <laughs> with one another. Yeah, they said it's it's wow. like yeah, a majority of the calls are going to, to now. It'll be interesting to see 10 to 12 months from now, there's going to be either a, a huge increase in divorces or babies. Or yeah. Both. My money's on both. Yeah. There has to be. <laughs> oh, but, uh, I mean, Ian, do you think Daytona's going to happen? You know, I I don't know. I know that in the history of the Daytona show, it's never been canceled. I remember one year there was a hurricane, Hurricane Charlie year. Show still went on. Um, the, the, the show has always gone on. There's, there's never not been a Daytona show. I don't think it will be up to Wayne Hill whether there's a show. Yeah. I think as, as long as he's able to put one on, he will put one on. I think the bigger concern will be whether the state, the city, the municipality, the venue, whether the hotel will be open. You know, there's a lot of other kind of pieces that have to come together in that puzzle for there to be a show. And Florida's still locked down at the moment, although I think that we'll start to see some things open up. But I'm not sure if all of that will even be an option. Um, I think that the bigger issue also is that I don't know if you had a chance to look at that uh, that post that I shared with you earlier, but it sounds like there could be some issues with shows in general and mm-hmm. from, from two fronts. One, you know, if, if you can't have a concert and you can't have a basketball game or a baseball game or you know, any other event with a large number of people, are you going to be able to have a, a reptile show or a gathering of any kind when you have five or 10 or 15 or 20,000 people Maybe not all at the same time, but over the course of a weekend. So from a health standpoint, I don't know if they're going to allow gatherings of that size. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue is apparently while this whole COVID thing is going on, there has been some movement from uh, apparently from animal rights activists in particular, but they've gotten some congressional people involved. But to look at what should be done in terms of cracking down on the trade in wildlife and, and wildlife uh, markets, as they call them. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk of the, the wet markets in, in China or in Wuhan where the virus started. But will they consider a show like Daytona a, a live animal market? Right. Where do they draw that you line? Know? Mm. I don't know. Apparently there was a letter, PJAC and U.S. are involved, that talked about, um, you know, a push for the limit. Uh, of all importation of wildlife that wasn't part of conservation. And uh, obviously that's pretty vague and wildlife could encompass quite a bit, but I'm not sure what the rules and regulations are going to be for gatherings, both on the the health side and on the animal side. So I think it's, I think it's to be determined. Will will there be a, will there be a Daytona? Will there be a Pinley? Will there be Repticons? Will there, I mean, there's probably a dozen or, or more shows every weekend somewhere in the country. Are those shows going to continue? Uh, a lot of those shows have mammals and birds and reptiles and amphibians kind of all mixed together sometimes. You know, I, I don't know. And then, then the health side of it with the number of people, uh-huh. I, I'm just not sure. I think it's it, it'll be really telling to see what happens over the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months. But if 
you can't have sporting events and other large gatherings. I'm not sure how how we're gonna see reptile shows start back up anytime soon. Yeah, I'm not getting my hopes up too much about. I mean, I have a, you know, Phil and and all them are super excited about Daytona and whatnot. And I just I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm not really getting getting my hopes up too high about it. And I just at the rate this thing is is going, I I don't know. I'm I'm not thinking it's uh it's gonna happen, but. Yeah, there's so much unknown right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's probably too early to say. And um, the other kind of interesting thing that's coming out of all of this, and I don't know if you guys have followed it or not, but you know, there were a couple of tigers and lions at the Bronx Zoo that tested positive for COVID. Yeah, and I also about a couple that. of house cats, yep. some personal pets, and I saw a bulletin that came out. It came out through the Florida Fish and Wildlife, and so I don't know if it started with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but they were saying uh, the, the group of felines and uh, the Faraday, I think that includes like ferrets, weasels, some other animals in that like same group as ferrets. And so it, it's kind of interesting to think that we have to worry about, are we going to give our animals this now? Not just are we going to give it to each other. So that's another concern. You know, you worry about reptile shows all the time about mites or if someone touched this animal and then they touch your animal, but you got to worry about, are the people going to get my animal sick? I mean, maybe not so much with a snake, but mm-hmm. just pets in general. I feel like there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on live animal interaction with humans. Yeah, I think the impact from this uh, is yet to be seen in terms of how it's going to affect the hobby. It, you know, you essentially shut down the whole world for, for a, a viral infection and, and they're blaming, you know, transmission from, from animal to human in the wet markets. And you can imagine that this is definitely going to have an impact on uh, what we like to do. Yeah, I'm still surprised yeah. that FedEx and the postal service are still doing their thing. Like I was sure that that would be one of the first things they'd be closing down, but yeah. Yeah, you know, they're still shipping, but I don't know if you follow, you know, ship your reptiles bulletins that they put up. It, it sounds like I've seen people talk about delays of two and three days, yeah. high high volume. They're talking like Christmas time mm-hmm. kind of volume, both weather and, you know, uh, personnel delays. So I've got a bunch of animals that are that are waiting to go out. Um, I'm just sitting. I, I, I tell my yeah. customers that. If ship your reptiles isn't confident enough to turn their insurance back on, then I'm not confident enough to ship the animals. Yeah, that's a wise move. I, I shipped one, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now, and yeah, you know, it's pins and needles the whole time. You know, hoping everything's going to go okay because there's just so much happening that could could cause a delay. You're much better off waiting. Yeah. I sit on pins and needles normally when I ship, so it's like, yeah. you know, it's like shipping it's the worst week of Christmas. Now. You, you're not going to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, the other consideration we're talking about the impact is on the import side. You know, right now right. there's not nearly as many flights coming in. I heard that getting freight from you know, Indonesia to the U.S. has gone up by 100% because the number of flights is a fraction mm. of what they were. And if if they start to limit the import of animals from a, a concern over you know, zoonotic potential, I mean, imagine what that does to the Morelia world, if importation of, you know, imagine if, if they won't let anything from Indonesia in anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
if they won't let anything from South America, Central America in anymore. I would imagine anything from China and Asia is going to be scrutinized, you know, like all those rat snakes and, and other cool things, cool lizards and geckos and stuff, frogs that come from that part of the world, turtles. I, I imagine that that's going to have a big impact if, if nothing else, if they just slow it down to take a closer look at things. And, um, you know, I heard at one point that there was no import coming in temporarily because they didn't have the personnel to process the paperwork and there weren't the flights to bring stuff in and there weren't the people on the other side to issue everything. Not surprised. Just such a such a fiasco. Yeah, I I mean I'm sure that unfortunately our snake obsession is probably not high on the priority list of a lot of people looking at the things right now. Right. Or should it be given the gravity of the situation? But I think it's. I feel like the talk of when will things get back to normal. Like, there may not we, we may never go back to normal. There's, yeah, it's gonna be a new normal, I think. A new normal, exactly. But I mean now's the time we can get a head start on SECF twenty twenty one, right? I don't know, you tell me. You're you're, you're ready? <laughs> I'm ready to pass the torch to you. I thought that's what we were doing. <laughs> I don't know. I've I'm, I'm the gears have started turning, but I haven't actually started doing anything with it yet. It's still, right. I mean, it's only April. So, so before we talk about before we talk about that, I just want to put a button on the thing about import and and kind of the new norm. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I just want to make sure to give a shout out to to PJAC and to US Arc and to Florida US Arc and to Phil Goss and the other people that are working on this. I think that if there's anything we can do right now while we are home or out of work or working from home or whatever is make sure join us arc, you know, follow them on social media right now. They're putting out a lot of information about some of these potential, um, and you know, issues that are, that are coming up at a, a federal level and they're mm-hmm. asking for people to, to email their congressman or their legislator or, or get involved in that way to support the effort. So I think, uh, I don't know if you can put it in the, the comments or whatnot, but we should definitely uh, steer people towards the way to get in touch with U.S. Arc and to get involved and make a donation because those are the folks that are fighting for our right to, to continue to keep these animals and have a reptile industry. So I just want to make sure to, to encourage people to get involved in, in both PJAC and U.S. Arc. I'd be curious to see what both like we know U.S. Arc does a lot, but you know we don't hear a whole lot from PJAC, or at least I I haven't. And uh, be interesting to see like just what those those two groups alone you know accomplish. Yeah, well, you know U.S. Arc only represents the interest of the the reptile industry. PJAC is a, a much bigger, broader, mm-hmm. kind of higher up the food chain organization, and so you've got um, you know the interests of the entire dog community the cat community the bird community the aquatic the whole community. Pet market exactly exactly i mean i i saw one comment that said if you shut down the quote-unquote import of all wildlife you know imagine what that would do to the saltwater aquarium industry oh um, yeah you know it just it would just decimate it so yep you know when you get when you get something that pjack gets involved in it kind of takes all of the reptile u.s arc energy and it just multiplies it because there's just so much more when you think about dog and cat and bird and aquatics and other mammals and so um you know 
PJAC is kind of like the big brother, big cousin of, of USR for the whole pet industry. Well, that's good to know. That you know, we're not in it alone this time, in a sense. Yeah. You know the numbers. Yeah. So Phil Goss from US Arc is involved in PJAC. I think he's kind of like the representative, and I know Ryan McVeigh. Uh, also, I think there's like a subcommittee for for reptile issues. So I believe that Ryan McVeigh also kind of represents the reptile industry interests at the PJAC mm-hmm. level. Well, I know like Daytona alone, seeing that auction, man, like people drop some serious money at that, that U.S. ARC auction. Yeah, well, that's another reason why I think it's important for people to continue to support U.S. ARC now because who knows when there's going to be another U.S. ARC auction. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine they, they already didn't have one at Tinley. There's not going to be – they were going to reschedule Tinley for June. That's not going to happen. Yep, I saw that. Uh, so. <clears throat> You know, if that auction raised twenty or thirty thousand dollars, that's that much less than U.S. Arc's budget right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to talk to Ben about that Carpet Fest website. Maybe we can get uh, get a, a U.S. Arc auction um, auction up there as well. Make something happen. I'll have to talk to him about that tonight. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Get her done. But how was? Southeast Carpet Fest 2020. Well, I mean, you know, you were there. I, it was. Oh, yes. It was, I, I would say it was a, a huge success. I'm glad that we did it when we did it because it might be the only Carpet Fest for 2020 at the rate we're going. Yeah. And it was probably the last big gathering of reptile people in the Southeast for a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think in in that regard, we kind of lucked out with the timing, but I would say it was, it was a fantastic success. It was obviously a, a huge amount of work and a labor of love, but we had a big team of people that, that helped contribute. Uh, obviously you were heavily involved and uh, our host Pia and Cody at Terrestrial and Arboreal, uh, the Ruas, Eric Chung, all of our sponsors, uh, you know, it was it was a team effort. It, it takes a village, as I always say. But we raised, uh, I think, if I recall, and Justin, you correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was $1,200 for US Arc with our shirt. And then yeah, yeah. we did, between the, the raffle, some cash donations, some leftover sponsorship money, and the huge auction that, uh, that you spearheaded, um, we raised... $30,000 for nidovirus research. So you put that on top of the 20, I think it's 23 or 24,000 the year before. Mm-hmm. And in two years time, we raised over $50,000 for nidovirus research. So uh, in my mind, that's, that was, that's hugely successful and far exceeds my, my wildest expectations. But the, the other thing about Carpet Fest and, and the real spirit of Carpet Fest was the people. And we had, I don't remember what the final tally was, but well over 100 people. It was kind of cool because it was a lot of people that had been there previously, but also a lot of people that had were first-timers. Yeah, a lot of new so faces. We had a, a really cool crowd. It was a good mix. Great food. Catering the food in was, was a fantastic idea. And so that was really cool. And some great food we had uh music and games and fire and uh 
and even there was like a, a camp mini campground going between tents and RVs. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, I, I mean, when people ask me like, what was it like? I was like, it's just like a, like a big hell of a party in the middle of the woods kind of. Yep. So yep. it, um, it was a really good time. We raised a lot of money. The collection there at PA and Cody's place is of course top notch. And they had all those new Doug bars cages that mm-hmm. they just recently gotten in. So the animals just look, you know, stunning in those cages and really nice displays. So it was, uh, and they were actually ready to have people in a lot earlier in the day than they had been the first time. So I think having done it at their place the year before, a lot of little kinks got ironed out. Yeah, definitely. I would say it really went very smoothly overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, uh, I think given that they knew kind of what to expect this time, it was a little easier for them to to have everything ready and you know in advance that needed to be ready and all that good stuff. Yep. But and of course we had the Nido talk uh, mm-hmm. with uh, with Doctor uh, Roz Oz, uh, Rob Oz, and we had Stephen Tillis and um, Susan from Fishhead Labs. So it was nice that they actually were able to present some some slides mm-hmm. with images, and I thought the talk was was really good and. Obviously, went into uh, a little bit more detail. Uh, oh, also, Dr. Wellaham was there as well. So it was it was good to get that information out as well. So I think um, you know having that as kind of the the point where we get updates on what the money is going to is kind right. of nice feedback loop for people to see the results of of what they're helping to fund. Well, it was also really nice having like the pictures and stuff to go with it so people have a bit like you can explain it to people all you want but having the pictures and stuff of what you're needing to be looking for and like what the effects are on the cellular level like i think that helped a lot i mean i learned a lot from that talk oh yeah the the visual was was really cool uh i thought that um that some of the the statistics that susan fogelson from from fishhead shared mm-hmm. also were interesting when you looked at some of the, the numbers of tests that they've run and how many different parts of the country they've seen positives from, and yeah. the prevalence seems to be a lot higher than maybe we, we realized. Definitely. It's kind of interesting when you think about some of the parallels between kind of the path that we're on as a community in terms of knowledge and understanding of NIDO. And I know it's a, it's a different virus, but it's got some similarities in, in the whole COVID-19 situation. And I thought it was kind of interesting when they were talking, I don't remember which press conference it was or, or, or which doctor, but they were talking about how there's enveloped and non-enveloped viruses and COVID is an envelope. And I was like, oh, that's that's just like NIDO is yeah. enveloped. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, well, NIDO is in the coronavirus family, is it not? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I think they're in the same family. Exactly. I, I was trading some messages with, uh, with Dr. Oz a couple of weeks ago, and I said to him, I was like, so can we learn anything from COVID nineteen? I know you have some insight. Yeah. Don't hold back on exactly. Don't hold well, out. You know, now now that everyone's all looking at viruses, you know, like maybe is there something we could learn about antimicrobials? Is there something we can learn about vaccines? Is there something about testing? And mm-hmm. and it's kind of interesting now. Also, you think about a lot of the questions that we have kind of circulated and talked amongst ourselves about testing as a whole when it comes to NIDO are some of the same things that we're talking about testing when it comes to COVID. Right. Yeah, I should have, I was on the verge of messaging P and Dr. Susan, be like, send me a kid. It's not for a snake, it's for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I wonder if it God. would actually come up though. Like I wonder if it would if it would work. Well, I don't think so because the way that the PCR technology works is you you basically are matching a slice of well in this case RNA. Right. Oh, so, yeah, that's true. You know, it's got it's got to match up, or it's got to be so close. And in some cases, I think according to, to some of the information that Stephen Tillis has talked about, uh, the primers that they use in the PCR tests, you know, they're 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 refining those all the time because mm-hmm. it, they're only using a snippet of the RNA. So they're not comparing the entire strand, and so in some cases, you have things that are similar enough that it picks it up, or different enough that it misses it. Mm. Yeah. Well, I know the one thing from Carpet Fest that I do wish I had I had done more of now, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty and that's getting to, you know, talk to Forrest more. Um it was nice to see him. I chatted for him for, for with a with him for a very brief second, but uh you know, obviously, like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty. I wish I uh had more I talked to him a little bit at Daytona, but you know, there was a bunch of people there. There was a big condo group kind of chatting, and I just kind of sat on the sidelines a little bit and listened. Uh, but it was definitely nice to see him there. Uh, it was nice to see Dez. It was nice to see Lars. But uh, Yeah, that um, the month of February was a little bit bittersweet in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been, that's been a hard pill for a lot of us in the community to swallow. I actually didn't even know that they were coming to Carpet Fest. So it was kind of a surprise to me. And I was, I think I was out at the fire pit. No. Maybe I was back. Yeah, I was somewhere. No, maybe I was actually inside at that point in the Montaigne room. But I got tagged on a post on Instagram of them pulling in the driveway of Pia and Cody's place. Saying something like, you know, we're here at Carpet Fest, you know, something like that. And I, I, I looked down at my phone and I'm like, what the? And I realized that it was them and they're outside. And so it was kind of funny and it was a cool way to do it. So I guess I don't know who, if anyone even knew that they were coming, but they apparently drove all night or all day and and showed up kind of unannounced, kind of late in the, the evening. Oh, I didn't but know they drove. Was... I thought they flew. No, wow. I believe that they drove. I believe they drove from Indiana. Jeez. I guess it was Forrest, Desiree, Lars, and Stephen Cush. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah. So it was it was awesome that they came down. They stayed up super late actually, and um, I, we were hanging out till pretty early hours in the morning. And it was certainly great to see them, and, and it was a nice surprise that they were able to make it. And of course, you know, Cold Blooded Cafe was a sponsor of the event, so it was was only right for them to be there. I actually got to see Forrest the following weekend. I got to see all of them, Forrest, Dez, Lars, and Steven, the following weekend at the Arlington NARBC show, which is probably the last big show for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, as you guys know, and probably most of the listeners know, just a few days after that, Forrest tragically and somewhat unexpectedly passed. And it's uh, it's obviously very sad news for all of us and left a big hole and in particular with a lot of the folks in the the green tree python community he was a big conjo keeper and he was a big supporter of, of carpet fest and a fixture at, at most of the big shows 
Daytona and, and Tinley and, and Arlington as well. So it's uh, that, that was a real tough one to swallow and he will certainly be missed. Um, it, was, it was definitely sad news. I'm, I'm glad I got to see him. Seeing him two weekends in a row was that was kind of a treat because mm-hmm. the schedules that that's not usually the case and so it was nice to see him. There was a big Texas Condo Keepers gathering at the Arlington show and, and him and and Desiree and Lars and Stephen were there. So I got to see him that, at that dinner as well. So it was nice to see him. I like you. I, I wish I had known that that would be the last time I saw him. I would have certainly spent more time with him. And uh, and he will definitely be missed. I uh, definitely want to give a shout out though to to Desiree. She's she's keeping uh, what he referred to as Zoo Dreams alive. So Zoo Dreams forever is the hashtag people are using, and she's keep keeping chugging with uh, with their podcast and the Reptile Collection and and Cold Bloody Cafe is, is still going strong. And if you want to support her and, and Lars and Steven, that's, that's a great way to do it is go order some rodents from Cold Blooded Cafe. I know a lot of people without the shows going on every weekend are looking for rodents. So they are still shipping. You should reach out to them. And uh, and MJ uh, from the Snake Drop Sessions or the, the Unfiltered Reptiles podcast, he's done a bunch of shirts to tribute to Forrest and mm-hmm. to also raise some money that goes back to, to Des and Lars. And so if anybody... Uh, New Forester wants to help contribute a little bit to help his his wife and son. Uh, they can they can reach out and get in touch with MJ. But yeah, that was that was really sad news that that happened just before the Tinley show was supposed to take place, and um, they were going to do a big tribute for him at Tinley. And when the Tinley show got canceled, uh, Ryan McVeigh and his his wife Erica McVeigh stepped in and they ran a big auction online to, to benefit Forrest's family, his wife and his son, Lars. They've got a, a little boy who's one years old now. And they actually raised $50,000 that went to Des and Lars. So it's, it's awesome. amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's just amazing what the reptile community can do when when they put their heads together and they, they, they want to do something for the common good. So um, so that, that was really heartwarming and kind of a nice tribute to Forrest as well but he'll certainly be missed by a lot of people. Yeah, I will say that is one thing about the, you know, the hobby and the community is like, while yes, it is vast and there are a ton of people, it seems like it's also very small and everyone's fairly close knit and everyone sort of knows one another. And, uh, in times like that, you know, people are, are willing to put their swords down online and, and kind of get together and put all the bullshit aside and, make something like that and carpet fest and you know all the other stuff happen yeah for sure and especially when you get into kind of the the subsets of the smaller communities i mean the it's one of the things about the conjo community that's so awesome is it's it is somewhat small and tight-knit and it's not nearly as big as let's say the ball python community or the tortoise community you know that's more mainstream but conjures are certainly a little bit of a smaller group and uh, that's one of the things that's always been really cool about being a conjo keeper was that kind of tight knit community. Mm-hmm. I always kind of like the fact that we sort of, you know, we police our own, we take care of our own. Uh, I don't want to say it's like mafioso like, but it, in a way, it sort of is. You know, you have to like earn you have to earn your respect from the old old timers. Otherwise, you're just a newbie. And but you know, even online, I mean, we do sort of police ourselves. We we take care of ourselves. We watch out for one another and. 
when people step out of line, usually, you know, we're, we're the first ones to jump in and let them know. So it was nice to see people come together. Uh, I should also mention, and I didn't know him personally, but I know a lot of people in the Condor world did, but Andrew Amen also recently passed away. And uh, he wasn't as active in the Condor world recently as, as he was maybe in, in years past. I didn't know him personally, like I said, but a, a lot of people did. He was pretty close with Matt Morris, and he was a Texas guy. And I know I've, I had an animal at one point, a male, that I think was produced in a joint pairing with him and Matt Morris. And so uh, you see his name in a lot of lineages, and he was uh, very active in the MVF forum heyday. And uh, my understanding is he also somewhat unexpectedly passed and was a relatively young guy, and I don't think it was expected at all. And so uh, there's probably some people that are thinking about Andrew as well. So my thoughts are go out to his family also. Yeah, just a constant reminder that you just you have you know you have no idea when when your time is up. I think a lot of people sort of lose sight of that. Like you know, it could happen to anybody. You don't have any control yep. over it, and uh, you know, don't take anything for granted. That's for sure. Yep. Uh, more so now with the current state of affairs in the world than probably ever before, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but, Chondra-wise, you've got a lot right now, yeah? Um, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> one way to say it. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly certain that we've described this as a, an incurable affliction. I don't even think uh, anyone's working on a cure or a vaccine anymore, the the only treatment seems to just be more conjures. Seems to be the only thing that alleviates the itch, I guess. Yeah. But, the only thing that limits its spread is how much space you have. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> but that's um, why you're making a bigger room. Exactly. <laughs> I've outgrown it. Really? I, I don't have any more space. I'm just going to double down what I've got now. Just have to expand. Right. Yeah. So, so which one of you is building a bigger room? I am. Nice. Yeah, I'm in the right in the middle of a uh, an expansion. Uh, I just don't have enough room anymore. I love it. Yeah, never have enough room. Nope. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how many cages, how many tubs, how many racks. There's just because as soon as you have them, you fill them, and then when they're full, you're like, oh well, now I need now I need more space. Or it's like, look, I have more space, more stuff for me to you know. That means I can buy more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, my problem has not been. At one point, it was it was buying, so it was it was all about literally someone would post something, and you know, within minutes, I was either on it or someone was tagging me on it. But now my big issue is the holdbacks. Yeah, because, what you're producing. Yeah, you know, one of one of the reasons why I like breeding in the first place, and you know, everyone breeds for different reasons. Some people breed because well, they think they're going to make money. Uh, you know, best way to, to get a million dollars breeding condors is to start with $2 million. Right. Um, or they think that, you know, it's a status thing or they're going to parlay it into whatever. But, you know, for me, and, and I'm sure for, for you guys and for a lot of other breeders, I like to breed stuff because I want, I want the pick of the litter. I want the holdbacks. 
you know, the breeder always gets the nicest stuff and the nicest stuff never gets sold. It always gets held back. Mm -hmm. And so in order to get access to the holdbacks and the nicest stuff, you got to make it yourself pretty much um, because that stuff just, that's the way it is. Yeah. The people who produce it, they keep it. I mean, it's no different than if you were breeding dogs, you would, you would always keep the pick of the litter. So for me, that's, that's the big driver and motivation to breed is like, I want to be able to find that awesome, amazing pick of the litter that no one else has access to and then sell the stuff off that I don't want or don't like or as much or don't have space to keep or whatnot. But really it's more about being able to get that pick of the litter. And so I, I think I learned kind of the hard way. And so the first year that I produced Conjurers was 2014 and I didn't keep anything. It's like the biggest mistake I made in my condo keeping career. And I regret it literally every day. I didn't keep anything. <laughs> he wakes up, looks so in the mirror, and himself. Yeah, I was just so <laughs> excited to produce them and to get them established and that people wanted them. Mm. And I sold them for like, you know, half of what I would sell them for now if I would even sell them. But but I didn't keep any of them. And sort of the the ghost that haunts me now is there are people that have my 2014s that potentially could produce my grandkids or my F2s before me because I don't have any of them. I literally oh, don't yeah. have a single one of them. And so as a result in 2015, I initiated my like, you know, hoard and dominate strategy, which was just keep everything. Don't let anything go, keep them all. And so I started holding back really heavily in 2015 and 2016 and 17 and onwards. And so that now has been my big issue is not, oh, I've got an empty cage, I wanna go buy something. It's like, oh, I've got an empty cage and I've got like five animals that need that cage. Who's gonna get it and who's not? <laughs> um, because there's, you know, there's just, there's, there's another one behind that one. And when that one's got a cage, well now something from the baby rack can take your grow out tub because you moved up. So that that's my bottleneck now is it's like, there's just a log jam of, of every year's holdbacks and I don't want to get rid of any of them because especially a lot of them, you just, what are they going to look like? Well, I don't know. Yeah. I got to hold them back until I see what they're going to look like because yeah. otherwise I end up, you know, inevitably you sell the one that you shouldn't have. And then that's already happened to me in the past as well, because some years I said, all right, well, I'm going to sell half and keep half and just try to play the odds. And then of course, one of the ones I've sold ends up being one that someone posts up and I'm like, Oh, why did I sell that one? <laughs> What was your first chondro? What was that first pairing? Well, my first, the first chondros that I produced. First chondro you ever, like, what, the chondro that got you the bug? So the chondro that got me the bug was actually a friend of mine um, in Gainesville in college who at the time was working for Eugene Bissett, was keeping chondros. And he had... I would say it was, I don't, I don't want to describe it as plain because it wasn't plain in any way, but I would say it was classic sarong. Mm -hmm. So just solid green, perfect blue dorsal stripe with some blue laterals and a little bit of blue going into the face, dark tail. It was probably an import male, but it was just the classic, perfect, definition of a sarong locality green tree python 
and I saw that thing. It was in one of those old school 36 inch slant front uh, Neodesha cages. And I just saw that thing and I sitting on a perch and thought it was the most amazing snake I had ever seen. And so that really was the inspiration that um, got me interested in going into green tree pythons. So I, I had bred and kept a lot of other animals right, right. Um, and, and other reptiles and especially a lot of other snakes at that point. Um, but I hadn't kept any of the arboreal species. So that was really what made me decide to make the jump into arboreals. And, and really at that point, I started buying some babies from this friend of mine in college. And every time he had a clutch, I would pick one out and he was breeding them for a few years. And so he started producing them and I started, I think I bought my first one from him in like 2004, 2005, something like that. And so every time he would produce one, I would just or produce a clutch. I would pick one from that clutch. And um, over time I, I grew a bunch of them up and somehow ironically ended up with 3.3. <laughs> and those were the conjures that I originally started breeding with. And did, how long did you keep those original ones, or do you still have any of them? I don't have any of them. They all have since passed. I mean, they would all be up there in age. Yeah. There's one of those original six that's still alive. The only one that I ever let go, and it was a female Aru. I had produced, or I had two females from the same clutch. They were sisters. And this one female, she slugged out on me, I think, two times in a row and then uh, had a really bad prolapse. And so I decided that I didn't want to breed her anymore. And so I sold her to, I don't know if you guys know him, Brandon Sander in Texas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he used to be a little bit more active than he is now in, uh, online in the condor world. But I sold her to him kind of as like a retired breeder kind of situation. And, um, and he still has her just as a pet. And said that she's uh, she definitely is showing her age, and she's kind of a finicky feeder now. Uh, she was always like a ferocious feeder back then, but he said that you know she does she definitely is past her prime, but she's still alive. So um, that snake would be oh that would have been a 2005. So that animal would be about 15 years old at this Oof, point. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So. Um, not as old as my, my geriatric retirees that just hang out here, uh, birth online me. I mean, they're, they're going on somewhere between 25 and 30 years old. Wow. But, Is that um, that pair that's always locked up but never produces anything? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are my, my horny retirees. They, they're like uh, the, <laughs> it's like the villages. You get the, yep. <laughs> It's exactly like the villages. It's, uh, you know, it's funny. I put them back together just today, actually, because all that weather was coming through. But that Bioc pair, so they're imports. So, you know, who knows how old they really are. I've had them since 2015, I believe. I think they've been here about five years. And before that, um, you know, they, they've been through a couple different people's hands. But the estimated age when they came here was 20 to 25 years old. So they've been here for five years. So now they've got to be somewhere between 25 and 30 years old. And I don't have the heart to put them with anything else. So I only put them together and they seem, they love to hang out. They, you know, they love to cohabitate. 
I separate them, you know, for periods of time. I feed them sometimes together. She's a ferocious feeder. He's a really picky feeder. So sometimes if I really want him to eat, I got to separate them. But, um, yeah, they, uh, they breed all the time though. I mean, I, I see them locked up probably on average, I would say at least once a month. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> Have you found uh, uh, when they start getting up, you know, that many years in age that, you know, any special requirements or special care that you have to give them or you just treat them like all the rest of your others? No. Um, I mean, they definitely kind of show their age. So she, she's a tail hanger mm-hmm. and she also at some point um, earlier in her life had a prolapse. So she seems to hold, and, and a lot of times I think it's not even fecal matter. I think it's a lot of fluid mm-hmm. like right by the cloaca and so I give her smaller meals than you probably would an animal that size. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a big animal. I don't remember the last time I weighed her, but I mean, she's well over a thousand grams. She's, she's a big animal. Um, so I don't feed her, you know, I don't push the food very frequently. I don't give her very large meals. She'll eat, you know, constantly. She likes to coddle lure too. Uh, and she's got a really strong feeding response, but I just, I, I, spray her really heavy compared to probably some of the other conjures. She probably would benefit from doing some rain chamber sessions like you do. Mm-hmm. And I actually was just, I was actually thinking about today when it was raining finally that uh, I was like, man, I would be really cool if I had a way when I, when I know there's rain coming like that to put them outside for an hour, oh, yeah. Like, in a, yeah. like in a mesh cage, just to, like give them that stimulation of the, the cool breeze and the heavy rain and then the light rain and the heavy rain. Um, but I might have to think about that a little bit because I think she's one that would probably benefit from that. But other than that, I just, the big thing is because they're so old and they've been with so many through other collections, I've never put them with anybody else, you know, any other animals. I've only, they've only been together. I've never paired them with any other animals. So other than that, I, I wouldn't say that there's really any other special care that they get. Um, like I said, just slightly smaller meals, maybe a little bit less food. Yeah. I kind of feel like if they breed, it would be amazing. I would love to have pure Biox with their genetics and, and to see their genetics carry on. But it's not like some other animals where I feel like I'm trying to kind of condition them for breeding. Right. So I don't, I don't push the food really the way that I might it, if, if Bertha was a three or four or five year old chondro, mm-hmm. she probably would be getting either more frequent meals or larger size meals or maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. What do you so. do as far as getting females ready? Like I've got my my pair have started to lock up the last two weeks. And uh so I'm I'm gonna start packing on a little bit on my female going in. So, you know, I think that obviously there's the the combination of frequency and size. Mm-hmm. So you can increase one or the other or both. Um, I probably tend to feed my animals a smaller meal than maybe most people do. Or, or, or I, I shouldn't say that because I don't know what most people do. But but I have always, in my snake keeping career, have always leaned on the theory of feeding a smaller prey item a little more frequently than a Mm -hmm. larger prey item less frequently. And I'm not really sure where 
kind of like the guideline or the rule of thumb came from of like feed an animal something that's big enough to put a lump in it. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that that's kind of like a common thing that I see or hear is like, you want to feed a prey item large enough that, you know, I, like some people say like versus the diameter of the animal and other people I hear say like, it's something that's big enough that it leaves a, a noticeable lump. And, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. And I also don't know that there's one rule of thumb on how to feed snakes as a whole um, when you look at how different and diverse different species are. Right. And I, I think a lot of it, just, it depends. Like, how, what's the metabolic rate? What time of year is it? Is it a male or, or a female? What stage of life are they in? You know, what is your objective? Are you maintenance feeding? Are you trying to recover from breeding or get ready for this? So I, I just think it's difficult to say like there's a magic like recipe, like put it in the oven at this temperature for this long and it'll come out perfect every time because it depends. And so I have always believed like, I like, I, I subscribe to the old school thinking of a hungry conjure as a happy conjure. So I like that when I come in my room and I'm sitting in my snake room right now and I'm, the lights are off in all the cages. So I turn around and they're staring at me like neck stretched out, like, they want to eat right now, even though they feeding day was Saturday. They all want to eat right now, and I, I don't mean in the sense that like a starving, skinny, malnourished right. chondro is a happy well, they, chondro. They'd eat every day if you if you let them. Right, but but I've also seen fat chondros that are so yeah. fat and happy that like they don't even want to lift their head off the perch, and you know you got to stick the food right in their face to even get them interested. Like I want mine to be like, hey. You're in the room. What are you doing? You got any food? I'm, I'm stretching my neck out. I, I want them to be uh, hungry enough that they're going to be looking for food. Yeah. In a lot of cases, they're going to be moving around looking for food. And so I don't I don't generally feed. You know, like, yes, uh, so I fed today's Sunday. I fed yesterday was Saturday, right? So I fed yesterday. And a lot of my adult conjurers that can take a small rat, yesterday I fed them what some African softers that are probably equivalent to like medium mice. Mm-hmm. You know, like weanling African softers. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, they're not even as big as like a retired breeder mouse. And, and I think that's okay because I think in the wild, especially conjures and, and a lot of the other arboreal species that I keep are probably actually hunting every single night. Yep. They're not, probably eating every single night, but they're probably eating a lot more small meals than they are big meals. Yeah. And so they're probably eating those small meals often because they're smaller. And I notice, especially with the smaller meals, like they process that food and have a bowel movement faster than a bigger meal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that like a lot of the other animals we keep as pets and probably even ourselves, like we're all probably a little bit, overfed and under exercise and and our animals probably are as well you know as, as guilty as i am like everybody else of keeping them in a 24 inch cube that these animals probably actually move around a whole lot more than that and cover a lot more ground in the wild and so in captivity they're they're fat and happy and they're sitting on a perch and we probably don't need a, they probably don't need as much caloric intake as we're giving them and so yeah, I would, by giving I would them a also... smaller meal you know, I feel like I'm compensating. 
I, I would almost guess too that they're not eating anywhere near as often as people think in the wild. They just based on you know like uh, Daniel Natusha's you know study data, you know the the weights of the animals that they've collected are yeah. so much smaller than what we see in captivity. There's no way they're getting the same caloric intake. Well, and I think that part of it is the the food density. So mm-hmm. I think you know they might get the same caloric density of a mouse, but they might get that across 10 or 15 lizards. Yeah, right. And so they might actually not eat the caloric equivalent of a mouse once a week or once every two weeks, but they might eat it like every three days in bits and pieces because to get that same, let's say, you know, if it's a thousand calories, they got to eat probably, you know, 10 lizards to get the same nutrient density as one mouse. Yeah. And so I think that's why... They get. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of my animals, especially, um, I see it with the females, especially. You know, they've got their daytime spot that they sit and sleep, and they got their nighttime hunting spot, and they go to that hunting spot religiously every single night. And I think in the wild they would do the same thing. They would set up, maybe not the exact spot, but maybe they have two or three spots or a dozen or whatever. But they're going to go hunt every single night, and maybe they don't catch every anything every night. But I think that when they do, that they're probably much smaller, less dense meals every time so that they can eat more often. You know, yeah. they can they can eat a lizard every other night or every third night. They probably can't eat a rodent that often, but they can probably eat a lot of these smaller, less dense prey items more often. Frogs, I mean, shoot, a frog's got to be 99% water, you know. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a firm believer that they're, you know, lean is where they're supposed to be yeah yeah well it's something that you know you see when and unfortunately we don't see it very often because people i think especially with some of the considerations nowadays don't share as much as maybe they used to or that they could but when you do see people that post necrosy pictures the snakes are always just loaded with fat loaded with fat yep I mean, Even the ones loaded. that look somewhat lean. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, just loaded Tons of fat bodies. Like, yeah, like every empty possible space in the body cavity is just full of fat. And, and yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a green tree or a rat snake or a retic or a ball python. It, it, you see the same thing when people show necropsy photos. And But at the same time, you think about what we think of when we look in their cages. We want to see them plump and fat. You don't want to see you know, a skinny snake with its ribs sticking out and its dorsal spine sticking out, you know, like, oh, no, that snake needs to eat. It needs to be fat and plump. Um, so I think that, obviously, I, I'm not going to advocate that we should keep our animals skinny or underfed or malnourished, but I'm sure that there's a happy medium. And yeah. either we have to feed them less or we have to exercise them more, and, or, or maybe we need to do a little bit of both. So, um, you know, I was talking not so long ago to Tony Nicolai, who, uh, uh, you know, was a big chondro guy back in the day. Now he's more of an emerald guy. I think, uh, Justin, he, you probably met him at Daytona. He hung out yeah, at, at Daytona for a while. Yep. And he was saying that he's keeping some Amazon basins now and that some of the growth rates he was talking about were just unreal. They go, like, oh, yeah, I'm getting ready to pair some Amazon basins. I forget what their age was, but... I was kind of like a little bit taken back at first because I was like, wait a minute, how old are they? And he told me that he's got, because he's got, you know, just a a very small handful of 
animals, and I think he works from home a lot. But he said, well, I, I have the pleasure and the luxury of doing things that other people can't do. And he gets his animals out and exercises them in his yard, I think he said, like, almost every day. And so you, if you think about, like, if you were a bodybuilder, right, and you wanted to put on size and mass and muscle, like, you wouldn't sit around on the couch and eat junk food and just sit there all day, right? Like, you'd, take a, you'd be eating a lot, you'd be taking a lot of supplements, and you'd be going to the gym constantly, like, twice a, you know, twice a day or at least every day because you're trying to stay active and build that muscle. And so he's, like, working out his snakes every single day, and it, it really got me thinking about, you know, that's the way you build muscle compared to the way that we do it with our chondros is a much better recipe to build fat, you know? Right. Now, were they, those emeralds, were they older than you were expecting him to be when he was breeding them or younger? No, younger. Oh, okay. Younger. Like okay. He was seeing just amazing growth rates. And, um, you know, he said the animals were just growing so fast. And he really attributed it to this regiment where he was getting them out and making them crawl around and like up on things and like small trees or I don't know. He had like a, one of those jungle gym sort of things, I think. Mm-hmm. And he just, he's like forcing them to exercise a lot. And if you think about a lot of these snakes, like imagine how much muscular action it takes for a snake to climb vertically up like the trunk of a palm tree. You know, you ever seen the way like a snake climbs yeah. that motion? Yeah, right. Like that takes a lot, you know? Like a snake could do it a lot better than I could climb a palm tree. You know what I mean? Like, like I wouldn't be able to manage to climb vertically straight up, but that takes a lot of muscular like contraction and strength. And I think about the fact that a chondro in the wild probably does that twice a day, you know? Mm-hmm. Goes down at night to hunt, goes back up during the day to sleep every day now maybe some days it says like oh, i'm gonna shed i'm not gonna do it today or it's raining i don't feel like doing it or whatever but it's like they're going to the gym almost every day up and down up and down and we we don't necessarily the way that we keep them give them that opportunity and so i wonder if that's why we see a lot more fat in their bodies than you you would in a wild caught animal because they're just like a wild caught animal they go to the gym every single day Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I haven't thought of it that way. So, Ian, are you uh, are you a, a feed cycler for breeding? Is that how you're doing? You know, I I have tried temperature. I have tried food. I have tried just kind of put them together and let them do their thing, and. Ironically, I have found that all of the all of them work. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I guess I have kind of gone to the path of least resistance, and especially when I'm traveling a lot, I have not been as diligent in really using food or temperature to cycle them as I have in prior years. Mm-hmm. So I can remember when I first started breeding chondros, I was very religious about monitoring cold front and keeping the window open and looking at my nighttime temperatures and and really trying to get them cooled off enough and and that worked well and it, it definitely stimulated them to breed and but then I also found that over time it seems like our cold fronts are coming later and later and they're not as strong and uh, especially with a bigger collection that I didn't have 
a room with just breeders. So then I was concerned about cooling animals that I wasn't trying to cool. So then I went to very, very strict food cycling, like long periods of fasting with no food at all. And then the same sort of thing where it was like, well, now I got to remember like who, who's on fast and who's not on fast. And um, so then I just kind of started just keeping them on the same food cycle pretty much year round and just pairing them when I had pairs that I felt were ready and were the pairings I wanted to do and would just start pairing them until I either saw the activity I wanted to see out of them or saw evidence of them really not wanting to be together. Yeah. And I feel like they're usually pretty good at telling you one or the other. You know, you come in in the morning and they're all intertwined together. Okay, you guys are probably happy together. You come in in the morning and one of them is on, on the floor or under the newspaper or there's grates like smeared everywhere. Okay, someone's <laughs> probably not too happy. You know, maybe we need to separate you guys. And so, uh, you know, I, I heard a long time ago old time condo breeders or, or some of the, the, the older older keepers say, well, you just put them together so you get eggs. I think I even remember Justin, you and I having a conversation one time about that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've been doing. With your beox. It's like, you just put them together so you get eggs. I, you know, I've got a female right now. I'm fairly certain that she just ovulated about two weeks ago. She's a ferocious feeder. She's bred for me, I think, at least two times before. And all of a sudden, doesn't want anything to do with food. All she wants to do is sit under the heat light, and she's turning blue. I'm like, okay, you probably just ovulated. But you know what? I put all the other boys in, in with girls today, and I was like, you know what? I'm putting your, the, the male that was, was in with her, I'm putting them in there too. Because as long as he's not going to do any harm and stress her out or anything. Yeah, why not? I'm just going to, why not? Yeah. You know? Because you just never know. And I think part of that is because in the past with my travel schedule, I always felt like I didn't have it really dialed in to know exactly when they were going to ovulate. So I just always would err on the side of caution, like, well, maybe I'm too early, maybe I'm too late. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people talk about with chondros, a big mistake is pulling the male too soon because people mistake follicular development for ovulation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they pull the male too soon thinking that the, the female's ovulated, but really she hasn't ovulated. She's only developing follicles. And so I kind of feel like it's, no, granted, it doesn't work for every pair because sometimes the male stresses the female out or sometimes the other way around. But if, they, if they're happy together, then I'm going to leave them together as long as I can until I know for sure I'm getting eggs. So um, actually kind of exciting. And I, I know that this may not make for the best show, but I've got a female that's due to lay literally any day, and she could be laying right now. So while we're on the phone, I'm actually going to walk downstairs and just take a quick peek <laughs> because tonight could be the night. Oh, no, I can see she's still on the perch. So I've got one female that's literally due to lay eggs any day now. I thought she was going to lay them last night. She'll probably lay them tonight. Uh, and I've got another female that I think just ovulated. So kind of uh, two in the hopper, so to speak. So with, with your approach, you, you must be getting eggs, you know, randomly throughout the year. Yeah, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing. I was I was on a a group chat not so long ago. We've got kind of a, a sidebar group for just the South Florida Condra guys. Mm-hmm. We've got quite a few of them now. And we were talking about kind of like what time 
of year everybody breeds. And I was saying, well, I breed all year long if they'll, you know, I'll breed whenever they want to breed. And so I went back and started looking at the dates of when I've gotten eggs in the past. And believe it or not, the two months that I've gotten clutches of eggs the most were July and October. Mm. Now I've gotten eggs every month of the year, except for January and November. Hmm. But the most was July and October. Now granted, it's not, it's not the biggest sample size, but it's, I think it's it's somewhere between fifteen and twenty clutches yeah, over it's a trend you know, the last yeah you know over the last let's say you know six years or so um, so it's interesting that yeah. July and October are my big days now I've always believed and I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a result of my my strategy or technique or my geography but I have always felt like compared to other U.S. chondro breeders that my quote-unquote season was always much later than everybody else. Agreed. I mean, like, way later, though. Like, I always remember, like, around Daytona time, when everyone's talking about, you know, they've got babies, and and maybe they're going to bring babies to the show for sale, and and, and that being the big time August, I'm like, man, I've just got stuff that's, like, laying eggs and Mm -hmm. getting ready to lay eggs. And I feel like I always end up with babies way later in the year. Like people seem to have babies hatching before I even have eggs on the ground, I feel. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you because, I mean, the first time, my first clutch, the eggs came in, what I say, December or February? Something like that, David, when we were talking about the other day. But, um, yeah. you know, I tried them again earlier this year by putting them together and got zero action out of them. But now, within the last two weeks, they've started locking up more. So I'm on I'm on the same page. Like I think that's that's sort of the case with mine. Is like for whatever reason that April to June ish is kind of where they're. That's what you know. That's when they're doing their thing. Yeah. And you know, so what it makes me wonder is we think of a very traditional annual breeding season or cycle with these animals, and maybe they don't necessarily have that. Cycle. Yeah, no, I think it's 100% you know, female. Not, yeah, they may not be programmed into it. And, you know, for me, if you think about, I'm really far south, I'm subtropical. So maybe the idea of temperature cycling, that's why, you know, it's not as big of a deal because, you know, it's a lot harder for me. But in the wild, like, are they having as dramatic a temperature cycle in the wild? They're, they're almost equatorial, right? Like, mm-hmm. where they're tropical, there shouldn't be as drastic a swing. And maybe it has more to do with, you know, for me, I always speculate, does that have more to do with weather patterns? Because I yeah. always like pairing when there's big storms. Hurricanes and tropical storms have been always great times for me to pair. Um, I feel like a lot of times they pick up on those big cold fronts. Uh, and I say cold fronts in Florida. That's what means like, you know, it's not 90 yeah. degrees out. It's only 75 degrees out. But that change in the barometric pressure mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's more of a stimulant. And granted, I think that there's a lot of leverage you can pull to trigger them to breed. But I think sometimes they might breed if we didn't pull any of the levers. And yeah. we pull the levers and we think, we think, oh, because I did this, they bred. But they might have bred no matter what. I, I mean, yeah. I, 
I think that uh, a lot of people ask me, like, I feel like it's probably one of the more common questions that I get asked is, well, well, I heard green tree pythons are really hard to breed. How do you get them to breed? What's the trick? And I'm like, okay, you take a male and you take a female and you make sure you got a male and a female because that's probably one of the more difficult things to do is make sure you definitely have a male and a female and you put them together. And generally, if they're happy and healthy, usually they want to breed. Yeah. Usually getting them to breed is not, in my opinion, getting them to actually copulate is one of the easiest parts in the entire process. Agreed. And um, and I always describe it to people when they get all excited. They're like, they're like they locked up. I'm going to order a baby rack and I'm going to get an incubator. And, um, and and what size pinkies do I need? And I'm like, no, like getting them to breed is the easy part. Like that's the beginning of the uphill marathon yep, yep. that finishes yeah. with like a hundred yard dash through a cactus desert with crocodiles like uphill on glass you know what i mean like because <laughs> like getting the babies started is like the hardest part of the whole process getting the adults to breed is pretty much the easiest part of the whole process and so sometimes I think you know if they were easy they wouldn't be anywhere what. near as much fun yeah well that's true and then everyone would breed them and they'd be like ball pythons right exactly <laughs> also too i mean if you look you know at the weather patterns and stuff the only thing that really changes for them is seasonal rainfall and it just yep. goes from wet to wetter. And, you know, the, the Aussie ones at least experience somewhat of a drier season. But the ones in Papua New Guinea, it's like it's always raining, regardless, rainy season or not. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, it must be one of these things where the females, it's, a, you know, does she have any injuries? Is her parasite load kind of low? Does she have optimal weight? Okay, I guess I feel like I can go ahead and, you know, expend yeah, some time. of the energy yeah. developing follicles, you know. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. Exactly. It may not it may not matter what time of year it is. And it yeah. may not be on a quote unquote annual cycle and and you know, we think of some animals as, you know, matching the hatch and they gotta time it because it's when something else is hatching or being born and I don't know that that's the, case. the case. You know, yeah. I don't know if anyone like Daniel Natush or someone else has done any of the research looking at either is there a definitive breeding season for these animals in the wild and or is there a definitive breeding season for the prey that they consume in the wild mm-hmm. because if the prey are available year-round you would think there's no reason why they wouldn't reproduce year-round yeah and i feel like breeding in the wild for them is probably a lot more opportunistic than it is seasonal like i don't i think that again we think of snakes like you know singularly but a snake is not a snake is not a snake. I mean, you guys know that obviously, but the behavior of a green tree python may be very different than, than even other Morelia or other pythons. And so I don't know that living on a tropical island where you have very little, like you said, seasonal variation in temperature, you know, maybe the geckos and frogs and lizards and other small critters that they eat are available year round. So they don't have to time it to all breed at the same time of year. Right. You know, like, I don't know if I buy that theory. Yeah, I would agree. Until somebody actually goes out there and is able to do the field study, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and unfortunately, that's probably not going to happen anytime. No. (laughs) At the rate we're going, they they probably won't let Americans in because they'll be afraid we'll bring coronavirus with us. So it's, it's probably not even an issue of, like, you know, be able to afford to go over there or like, you know, get access. They're probably, Oh, you're Americans. No, we don't, we don't want you guys. You guys have COVID. You're going to get us sick. Right. 
So, but but going back to your 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 original question, David, I think I think that's why I've been successful getting eggs almost throughout the year because we pair almost any time of year. And so for me, what I look for in terms of like, is this pair ready to be put together? Um, is really a lot more around the conditioning of the animals. Mm-hmm. You know, is, is, do the animals have the size on them? One of the things that I really look for, especially in the females, do they have kind of like those big round bulbous fat sores on top of the head? Right. I feel like that's a really good indicator. For me, you know, it's kind of like, I remember when I used to breed leopard geckos or, or bearded dragons or things years ago, you would always look at the, the, the condition of the tail. It was always kind of the telltale, mm-hmm. no pun intended, but the sign of, you know, was that animal really well conditioned because that's where they would store the, the fat, right? Well, with condors, for sure, when a female's got a big bulbous head, you know she's really well conditioned um, versus you know, more of like a flattened or sunken in head. And because you see it when they breed, like that female that I've got right now that's about to lay eggs, the top of her head is completely flat, completely sunken in. She doesn't have any of that big round roundness and plumpness to the top of her head like she had you know, just three or four months ago. Do you breed females like back-to-back years or do you give yours a year off or do you kind of play it by ear depending on the individual? Same, same thing. I, I play it by ear depending on the individual, uh, but also because I don't necessarily subscribe to that 12-month cycle uh, mm-hmm. or breeding schedule, it doesn't necessarily have to be that she gets the year off or not. It could just be that you know, she's not ready six months from now, but she's ready nine months from now. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's right. not a decision of, like, either there, there's this small window where I have to decide, like, oh, am I going to breed her for 2020 or not? Well, it could just be, like, well, she's not ready in April, but she's ready in October. It, it, I really let the animal decide. And, and what I've always done as kind of, like, my sort of mental check is I've always told myself, if I'm on the fence, then I always err on the side of caution. I'm always like, well, is she ready? Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm like, if I'm not sure, then she's not ready. Because I, I, th- I feel like when, when an animal's ready, like, there's just no mistaking it. When you look in that cage, you're like, oh, yeah, she, she needs a boy because yep. her head is big and fat. She's got the right body build. You know, she's sitting plump on that, that perch. And she's ready. Like, there's no doubt when you see it and you look at an animal that you know is ready, you don't, you don't have an haw kind of with yourself, you know? Like, you're very definitive. You're like, oh, yeah, like, she's ready for a male. But mm-hmm. if you're kind of on the fence, like, well, maybe, maybe she's ready or, well, I, maybe she can use it. You know what I mean? Like, if you're, you're kind of de- debating with yourself, I feel like that's enough that, okay, she's not ready. Yeah. They seem to let you know right away anyway. You put the male in there, and if she's ready, they're going to link up almost immediately. Yeah, I would say, and maybe it's not even just that they're going to link up, like they're going to they're gonna lock up right away. Right. But there's usually body language that tells you, right? Yep. Like, I'm sitting as far away from this other animal as possible, like different perch, opposite side of the cage, like pushed up against the side farthest away. Mm-hmm. I'm not happy, right? I'm like perched on the same perch leaning against intertwined with even if i'm not locked up okay you're you're probably happy right um i feel like chondros that are happy together like they like to cuddle i know that's like you know 
anthropomorphizing the animals, but I feel like pairs that are at least t very tolerant of one another, you find them like coiled up to intertwined or literally pushed up next to each other. Like they'll yeah. share a perch and be very tolerant of one another versus when they don't want to be tolerant of one another or they're not happy together. Like they are clearly telling you, like, I do not want to be in this cage with this other animal. Mm -hmm. And that's that's been interesting with my two, you know, having see watching them go through sort of the phases of of interest and then disinterest, and you know, having this mailing with my girl the last couple weeks or last couple months, I should say, like seeing no interest in them and seeing what you were talking about, where the females like up against the side of the you know the the cage as as far as she can get, um, you know, the male being on one end, her being on the other, and then. Having, you know, walking in one random morning and they're locked up, you know, you definitely tell, like, she lets him know when she's ready. And it's, uh, it's just really interesting to see him sort of go through these phases of, like, they won't lock up or seem like they're locking up for weeks. And then all of a sudden you'll just walk in one day. And then for that week, they're locking up like crazy, what seems like every morning. And, uh, and then they go back to, to being, you know, no interest in one another. So it's that is one thing I will say of, of cohabbing while you're trying to get eggs out of them, you know, seeing them go through the uh, the friendship phases. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting about that also is that you really have to look at them day and night. So one of the things that that I do, and I'm sure you guys do it, and I'm sure a lot of arboreal keepers do it, is like I can't wait to go in and look at night when the lights are off. Mm -hmm. And if I wake up in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the night to go pee, the first thing I'm doing, like either on the way to or from going to pee is I'm going in a flashlight and I'm looking in the right <laughs> I do the room. same thing. You know, and especially <laughs> if I'm waiting on eggs or something, like if I roll over and just like catch a glimpse of the clock and it's like even like five o'clock in the morning, I'm like, oh my God, I got to go in there with a flashlight. I just got to look. <laughs> because sometimes what you find is you put a pair of animals together and during the day, different perches, different levels, opposite sides of the cage. Like they don't want anything to do with each other. And then you go in there at four o'clock in the morning and shine a flashlight in there and they're locked up together on the same perch. Yep. Yeah. I keep so, notes of so them. Sometimes, and, and so I it, have it's like the, go ahead. Yeah. Sometimes it's like the, like, you know, I don't want to be friends with you in public kind of relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <it's laughs> like they Let's keep this know, on the down low. <laughs> exactly. I was like, you look at me during the day, I'm not going to lead on that I even know there's another snake in the cage. But come in here at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's a party. you know. Yeah. But don't tell anybody. Like, I'm not admitting it to anyone else. That's why so, I love having security uh, camera in the in the room mm -hmm. so that you can, you know, via app, just kind of check in on things as often as you like without disturbing them. Completely agree. And, and David, that's a great transition. Um, so I'm very curious about the technology that people use because one of the things, so I, I've got some cameras um, that I use, but I'm not sure if there's some better technology out there to, to do kind of what I'm looking to do in particular, but I've got these little cameras. They're called, they're called Z Moto. So the letter Z and then M O D O. Mm -hmm. They were fairly inexpensive. I want to say like, I got like two of them for like, 30 bucks or 40 bucks or 50 bucks like they, they were fairly inexpensive it was like a set of two from amazon and um bill hughes out in las vegas turned me on to them and they work really well I've, I've got one in the incubator and i've got one that 
is directly across from my adult cages and it's got the infrared at night. So what's cool is I can see what's going on at night and it picks up the eye shine of the animals really, really well. So that's usually how I can tell what's going on is I can see their eyes moving around. Mm -hmm. I have the other one in the incubator, but what it doesn't, it, it, it's got an app so I can look at the camera anytime, anywhere in the world and I can look at it and it, I can record it and, you know, see video on it. But what I can't do is I can't live stream. So I don't know what kind of cameras you use, but do they have any kind of interface where you can like live stream to your social media? That's a good question. I recently just picked up one of those, um, uh, what is it, Wise? W-Y-Z-E yeah. is the uh, brand name. Um, I had a different camera in there and it, it dropped recently and, and essentially broke. So I had to get a new one. And um, this one, the quality seems to be really good and it was dirt cheap. But I'm I'm actually looking at it right now to see if it has live stream capability. I'm not sure that it does. Yeah, I've got one too, but I I I haven't seen anything that's been an option as far as that goes. Because what I wanted to do is like when I have a female that's getting ready to lay eggs, or when I have eggs that are due to hatch, I wanted to be able to live stream it onto either Instagram Live or onto Facebook Live or something. You know, like how they do right. Like, you know, oh, the eagle chicks are in yeah. the bald eagle nest and they're they're going to hatch any minute now and school children around the world are tuned in waiting for the moment the eggs hatch. Like, how do you do that? That's what I wanted to be able to do. And I can't figure out that the closest that, that we've been able to figure out is we took one of, I feel bad, like well, my kids have, you know, like our old iPhones that are just hooked up to Wi-Fi for mm -hmm. like kids apps and stuff. So I took one of the kids' phones and stuck it in the incubator and we downloaded Facebook onto it so we could Facebook live the eggs in the incubator. But of course, like, you know, you can only do that for so long before it times out on you. And we didn't know exactly when they would hatch. And it was kind of a little bit challenging. And then the kids wanted their iPhone back as well. So <laughs> that wasn't a good long-term solution, but I thought for sure that these little Wi-Fi cameras would, would do it. So uh, I guess I'll put it out there to the, podcast world if anyone knows how to take one of these little wi-fi cameras and do a live streaming through social media reach out to me and let me know even if i got to buy a different camera but i would love to be able to, to set something like that up well, that makes me wonder if there's an app or something that you connect that camera to that it it streams mm. it yeah something like that i just don't know enough about the technology i, I I don't know how to access the camera outside of the app that it came with. Maybe you just need like the IP address that it's running through the, the route, the Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but if someone out there is smart enough with IP stuff and knows how to do that, definitely hook me up. It's got to be relatively easy. Enough people do it, I think. Maybe yeah, you need like I a GoPro or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. I'd be interested in, in that camera that you're using, though, David. Maybe you can share the link uh, or post it up on, on Facebook and the Morelia Veritas uh, group. It would be interesting to see what you're using and what some other people are using. Is yours, yeah, I'll forward it to you right now, actually. Is yours the tall, right, cool. like, rectangular one, David? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's the, the campaign. It was like, I don't know, it was dirt cheap. Yeah, I, I got mine on like Amazon. 35 bucks. Yep, that's how much mine was. I love that thing, though. The build quality is really, really solid. Really good. Yeah, I might have to check that out. Yeah, Riley, yeah, uh, Riley Jimison right turned now. me on to him. So, so during this whole 
stay at home thing, I've been you know thinking more about technology. And one of the things that I was thinking about was um, temperature monitoring. Mm-hmm. So, and I put a, po- a couple posts up there, and of course things got derailed. And somewhere along the line, I think people thought I was talking about thermostats and not thermometers. <laughs> things kind of like went wonky. Yeah. But it really it really started because I was wondering about the temperatures in my incubator. So I haven't incubated any eggs since last fall. Um, so I haven't necessarily talked about it a whole lot, but my 2020 season was actually kind of off to a rocky start. Um, I had a female, I think it was just before carpet fest. I can't remember when. I know Justin, you and I talked about it, but I had a, a Biox female who actually died um, during ovulation. So she had, she ruptured an oviduct. Yeah. And so that really sucked. Um, it turned out that, so she had slugged out the last time I bred her and it turned out she had a retained ova. looks like a dried shriveled up peanut inside of her. And that seemed to get caught and ruptured her oviduct when she tried to ovulate this time. And so, so I lost her and then I lost, I had another female that slugged out a first time breeder, a Lara female. So I hadn't incubated any eggs since last fall. And at one of the shows I had picked up a new thermometer. So I used to use those little cheapo, like, I don't know, they're like two for 20 bucks thermometers. That's like the black plastic version of the yellow Zoomed one. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Like uber, uber cheap. And I had a bunch of those and I had like one in the egg box and then one in the other egg box and one on each shelf. And somehow miraculously, all of them had the battery die at the same time. Of course. So... <laughs> So, and, I, and then I realized when I went to look to see how much it was to order new batteries that the batteries are more expensive than the thermometers. Of course. <laughs> so, you know, so I was like, well, there's got to be a different thermometer that I could use in the incubator. So I ordered, I think it's a Reptile Basics one. It's like a little square black one that's got three red buttons on it. And um, so I, th- I think maybe I picked it up at one of the shows. Maybe at Arlington I picked it up. And I, I set it up in the incubator and I was like, man, it's, the incubator is running, according to this thermometer, it's running hot. It's running warmer than I would like it. And I try to target my egg box. Uh, my targeted temperature in the egg box is 87 and a half. And so I always actually set the incubator a little bit cooler because I find the eggs generate a little bit of heat on their own. Mm-hmm. But this thermometer was reading like, I don't know, it was like 88 and a half maybe. And I was like, oh, how could it possibly be that warm and I'm using a vivarium electronics thermostat, which is from Reptile Basics. And I've got that set at 86. I'm like, okay, I set the thermostat at 86, but my temperature is reading 88 and a half. Like, how is that even possible? You know, like through the laws of thermodynamics, the incubator shouldn't be warmer than the thermostat is. So it's like, okay, I need, I need a new thermometer. And I didn't want to order those cheaper ones again because I wanted something I felt like was a little bit more reliable. And so I was like, do I go to a lab-grade glass thermometer that's been calibrated? And then I saw that some people were using, I can't think of the name now, I'll have to look it up. But anyway, I put a couple posts out there, and somebody told me about these units called Govi. Have you heard of these? No, I haven't. So it's G-O-V-E-E, Govi. 
and I, I, I've got some links. Uh, I think I've already got them posted on my social media, but I, I'll share them out there, and you can put it out there as well, Justin. But they're through Amazon. They're really inexpensive, and so far I really, really like them. So they have two different models, and I actually bought one of each initially, and then I went back and I ordered some more of them, and they're from Amazon. And they make one of them is a little Bluetooth unit. So it's like this little tiny square, white square, and it's like $17, I think. And it's Bluetooth only, but it basically connects to your phone and it gives you humidity and temperature in real time and data logs it as well. Oh, nice. And then they've got a slightly larger unit that's Wi-Fi that's got because uh, the the smaller unit is just a little white square. It doesn't have any kind of digital outread or anything. You got to look on the app to get it. But then they've got a slightly larger unit that's Wi-Fi enabled that gives you an LCD screen with temperature and humidity. But then also the same feature on your phone. And since it's Wi-Fi for when I travel, I can get it anywhere in the world. And so it was really interesting. So I put the the Wi-Fi one in the main chamber of the incubator, and I put one of the little ones in each of the egg boxes. And I've been able to track it and I actually found that the incubators are really, really consistent, like really, really consistent, both temperature and humidity. And a slight difference from one shelf to the next, but I'm actually right where I want to be, like exactly like, like it's always been. And so it's one of those kind of funny things where just because I wasn't measuring the temperature didn't mean it wasn't perfect. But I was all nervous because being a condo keeper, we got to like overthink everything (laughs) and so i was worried like is the temperature too high is it too low like what you know i've always done it this way but i'm still overthinking everything and the the technology was basically able to confirm to me like no you're doing it the same way you've always done it it's spot on don't change anything just leave it alone and keep doing it the way you've always done it yeah that's Um, the issue i had the first time incubating my first clutch was the temp gun read one thing the indoor-outdoor thermometer probe that I had in there read another thing, and then I went and took the uh, little analog thermometer out of the beer cooler from work and put it in that egg box, and it ended up being fine. But that's my issue with a lot of the digital stuff is, like, is it calibrated right? You know, is it accurate? And I feel like you have to have yeah. an analog one on hand just to make sure. Yeah. That's why I have a NIST-calibrated um, um you know, glass lab thermometer. And that's, a, I base everything off of that because I trust it. And where did you get that? And can you ship that? I mean, like, once they ship it, does it, is it still calibrated? And right, like, as far as I know, I mean, it comes with a certificate and everything. Um, I put it, when you put that post up, I actually linked to, to what I had purchased. Um, and it's just a matter of getting one that's been certified. You know, there's plenty of them on, on the web. Okay, I'll have to go back and check that out. Yeah. I just wanted something to give me the confirmation. And, and I always yeah. go to the temp gun for confirmation, but you can't temp gun the egg box, you know? Like right. You temp gun the inside of the incubator. So, I mean, um, I looked at it like, you know, everything that you can buy off the shelf, none of that is actually going to be, like, lab calibrated. It's going to be close enough to tell you if it's 78 degrees outside. You're not going to care if it's off by a degree or two. But you know, if you want, if you need the precision, you definitely got to get something that's actually been baselined with an ASTM standard so that you know what you're looking at. And, um, you know, you get so much riding on those eggs that I just, I didn't want to chance it, uh, relying on, on stuff that isn't actually, uh, calibrated. Yeah. That's definitely one part of it that I don't want to skimp on. 
Yeah, these, these little Gobi units, what I like about them too, so I ordered a few more of them, is that I can put them in different cages and tubs and racks as kind of a spot check on how things are going in a given cage or the hot spot versus the cool spot. Mm -hmm. And I can just stick it in there for a week or two, record some data, look at the trend, day, night, cycle, and then I can take it out. And it, it, it gives me a tool to kind of tweak some things. And I've always subscribed to the Eugene Bissett school of thought of, you know, student of the serpent. Yeah. And I've always felt like I don't really care what the LCD screen on the thermostat tells me. I want to know, like, what's the animal telling me by behavior wise. And sometimes I find that, well, just because this cage is set at 86 and this snake is perfectly happy that I set the next cage that's identical at 86, but the snake wants it just a little warmer, a little bit cooler to show me that it's in that same sort of happy space as the one that likes it at this temperature. And so I, I feel like this little Govi unit really gives me that ability. It, it comes with like this cool little, like it's like a wristband lanyard kind of thing. So I was able to stick a couple of them. I just wrapped them around a couple perches and cages to be able to monitor temporarily on a short-term basis to give me an idea of like, what is the temperature in that cage over the course of an entire week? Mm, yeah, that's really cool. The and price is right. Look at that. Oh yeah, it was it was perfect. Seventeen ninety nine, and and the app can run a bunch of them. So I think I've got got like three of them in the incubator now. And then um, actually, kind of a funny story. I set up uh, a cage in my son's room. So uh, my son, who Justin, I think you've met my son maybe at Daytona. Yep, you were remember. looking for a Hercules beetle. That's right. We still haven't found that Hercules beetle. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh -huh. He kind of forgot about it now that you mentioned it, so maybe we shouldn't bring that up and remind him. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know how many seven-year-olds have a condor in their room, but my my son, so he he bonded with this condor a couple years ago because it bit him basically, and he felt like they were they were blood brothers after that. And you may have heard me talk about the snake before. His name, of course, my son named it. His name is Spicy Can. <laughs> so. Kind of the, the, the quick, funny backstory to it is whenever people say, like, are all import snakes mean and all captive bred snakes, you know, very docile, I always sort of chuckle to myself because they're all individuals. And if anything I have learned with condors is there's no absolute rule that always holds true because as soon as you say all condors will do this, one will do something different. And it's like, it, like none of them have read the book, you know, they don't know that they're supposed right. to not do something. So, so anyway, I had this clutch, I think it was a 2017 clutch, and literally like most of my U.S. captive bred baby chondros are mostly pretty docile, but there's this one, and it's number, and I don't know why, like usually I can never remember the animal's ID numbers, but this one was 1743. It was the last animal of that year. It was one of our best years ever, 43 chondros that year. 1743 was just a little shit from day one, <laughs> and it just it just would fly off the perch. It was so aggressive a feeder that it would, it was almost hard to get it to eat because it was such an aggressive striker. You know, like it would, it would strike at me. It would strike at the shadow. It would strike at the, the tongs. It would strike at the perch. It would strike at the paper towel. Like, like just strike at the pinky. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was just, it was like psycho right out of the bat. And my kids are pretty hands-on. They like to get involved with the animals. And so, I think we were feeding baby snakes one day and 
and that snake went right past the pinky, right past the tongue, and bit my son on the hand. And so my son dubbed that snake Feisty Pants. <laughs> and, of course, now we call the mom of that snake Feisty Pants' mom, and the dad of that snake Feisty Pants' dad. And you can see where this is going. It's problematic when I let the kids name things. So, um, so anyhow, him and Feisty Pants bonded, and so he started asking me, well, what's going to happen to Feisty Pants? Because the kids have this thing that they feel like once they name an animal, I can't sell it. And so if they really like something and they want to keep it, they're really eager to name it. And they know if I won't let them name it, that it's probably not staying long-term. And so once Feisty Pants had a name written on its little cage tag, they knew it was staying. And so they wanted to know what was going to happen to it. And, and somehow my son finagled that Feisty Pants would go live in a cage in his room. And so one of the projects, it was slated for spring break, actually, was to move Feisty Pants to a cage in his room. Well, they got spring break a week early this year because of the whole COVID thing. And so that was one of the first projects we did when they were out of school was we moved that snake into his bedroom. And I set that cage up exactly the way I had it set up previously, the exact same temperatures, everything. But I had never kept any snakes in his room. And, you know, he's got a ceiling fan he likes to sleep with on and he likes the cold in his room. And uh, I just... I didn't really know how that cage would perform in there. And I used one of those little goby things. I just wrapped the lanyard around the perch and put it on the cool side because I noticed that the animal was staying completely away from the heat panel. And it turned out that that cage, just given the ambient conditions and the size of the cage and the panel, even though I'd set the thermostat to, I think it was 85, it was just too hot in there. It was just too warm. It was really hugging the cool side. And so that little Govi unit using the, the data logging and the graph that, you know, gives you a graphical output, I could see that at night the temps were perfect, but during the day it was spiking a little bit too warm and it allowed me to dial it in because it was a new cage for both me and the animal. Mm -hmm. So I could see that that being a really nice technology or a tool in my toolbox for setting up new racks, new cages to kind of get them dialed in but also just for spot checking, you know, what is the temperature and humidity? And, and I often get asked about humidity in particular, and I always tell people, like, I don't really measure the humidity. When they're dry, I spray them, and when they're wet, I don't spray them. And people, I think, sometimes get frustrated because they're like, what do you mean you don't measure humidity? Like, well, how much is the humidity in your egg box in the incubator? I'm like, I don't know. High enough that water droplets form, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I, I don't have a hygrometer. Yeah, like, I don't have a hygrometer. I don't, I don't measure the humidity. And people, I think, sometimes think I'm being like aloof with them. But it's like, they're like, well, does it need to be 75% or 85 or 90? I'm like, I don't know. It's got to be humid enough that water droplets yeah, form. I get that you with know? cigars I don't a lot. Know. My hygrometer says my humidor is only 50%. Are your cigars dry? Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> exactly. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the truth was, like, I didn't even know what the humidity was in my cages because I never measured it. And so now it's kind of cool. These little units, they give me the out the output and the data logging on both the, the temperature and humidity. And, and what's cool is I like it because I can see, like, oh, that's when I opened the cage and I sprayed in there. Oh, that's when I opened the door of the incubator and I added water to the tray. Oh, that's when the night drop kicked in and you can see when the temperature drops back down. And you it's, it's sensitive enough that I can see – throughout even the course of a day, the spikes of, okay, the thermostat went on, it warmed up, thermostat went off, it cooled back down. Like even within that one degree range, you mm -hmm. can see like, you know, okay, this was the average and it, it went up 0.2 degrees 
then it kicked off and went down 0.2 degrees and it kicked back on. You can see even that little bit. So it's just kind of interesting. And maybe it's just one of those geeky things. I have too much time on my hands because I'm locked at home. <laughs> no, but I love that it made stuff. me realize that there's, there's some nice little tools you out a lot there. From that, that kind of thing. Exactly. And I was yeah. able to dial that one cage in because I had that. So, uh, so check it out, whether it's Govi or, or like the lab grade ones like you're using, David, I think that there's a lot of tools out there that we can utilize and the technology, the cost of technology has gone down and continues to go down. There's a lot yeah. of really neat things out there that are tools that we could use. And I think as a community, we've gotten away from sharing that kind of stuff. I feel like back in the MVF days, especially like, if one person found a trick or a tip or a new source of some some tool or supply or something, it was like people would share it, and that's how it spread through the community. I feel mm -hmm. like we don't we don't share a lot of that as much anymore. And some of those things are like just golden little nuggets, like oh, I use these special curved tip tongs, or I get my gloves from such and such supplier, or I found this great source for deli cups and. I think that there's an opportunity for us to share more information about those sorts of things. And does that thing run on batteries or is it rechargeable? How does that? So it comes with a battery of some kind, but I don't know. Let me see. I've got the box here. Like it definitely runs on a battery because it had like one of those little plastic like pieces that you pull out yeah. before it'll turn on. Um, but I don't know exactly if it's like a watch style battery or it's got to be pretty like long lasting because I'm looking in the box here and I don't see anything. Yeah, but I think most of those data trackers, David, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, those don't take up a whole lot of energy as far as batteries go. No. Right? Yeah. yeah, they must have a really low energy draw. I'm looking at these now, Ian, on uh, Amazon. You can get them for 13 bucks. They're dirt cheap. Oh, I got ripped off. I think I paid seventeen ninety nine. <laughs> yeah, Amazon's choice, twelve ninety nine. Yeah, for the little, so uh, for the, little, the, little the, the Bluetooth one. Yep. yep, that's the one. And then, do you see the the bigger one that's got the LED, the, the LCD screen? It's like what, like twenty or thirty bucks? Uh, I think it was more than that. Let me uh, let me see. They make a lot of stuff, apparently. Yeah, forty nine. Forty nine bucks. They've got one. Okay, there you go. Yeah. And you're using the ones, the cheaper ones, more, Ian. You got more of those than you do the LED panel. Yeah. So those little cheaper ones, um, you know, they're only they're only Bluetooth, so they're not Wi-Fi. But those are the ones that I I put one in each egg box, and I put one in the cage in my son's room to be able to monitor. Um, they don't have any kind of display, so the only way you get the data is, is through the app. Yeah. But um, and it automatically loads I, all the backlog information as soon as you connect to it. Yeah, as soon as you connect to it, it like you know every time I open the app, it like it's got like the little loading bar comes up, and then it goes, you know, data updated, and it's downloaded all the, the new data. Yeah. Definitely gonna have to look into those. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely cool. I um, I gave someone else a heads up about it, and they're like, "Oh, these are awesome," and and I ordered you know one of each initially because I wasn't sure you know was the Bluetooth really what I wanted or did I want the ones with the display? And then I liked it so much, I think I ordered like four more of the Bluetooth ones because I wanted them. Then I was like, "Oh, I want to see the difference mm -hmm. between the top egg box and the bottom egg box. Oh, I want to see the difference in the humidity in this cage versus that cage." And like I said, I was probably a little bit bored, but um, 
but it's just kind of interesting to get that kind of data and then not have to guess or speculate and you can really see what's going on in a given cage mm -hmm. or in your incubator. And you wanted to talk about supplementation a little bit? Yeah. So I know, David, this is something you and I have traded messages about. And yep. it's, it's an area I'm super interested in, but I'm so hesitant. And, and I, I really want to jump in finally and start to do something. Maybe you could, because other people are probably interested more, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and then the supplements you're using and, and how you're using them? And you know, my biggest question is, because there's so many supplements out there, is, which supplements do you get it with the vitamin D3, without vitamin D3? And then how do you determine how much, like the dosage rate for something that's eating a pinky versus something that's eating a, a small rat is going to be different? Um, you know, and is it, do you dust, do you inject? Like there's so many variables. I feel like it's, it's almost a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. But I feel like I'm at a point where I've dialed in so many other aspects of my husbandry that that's one area that to me is a big question mark. And I think that there's probably more risk than reward, probably more reward than risk in doing yep. it. Yeah. And so maybe it doesn't do anything, but maybe it helps, but yep. more than likely it's not going to hurt anything. And so it's a, it's an area that I have real interest in. I know I've been saying that we've been talking about it for a couple of years now, but I feel like I'm at the point where I'd like to, pull the trigger and order some stuff. So tell me a little more about what you do and where you get your stuff and how you go about sure. it. It's of interest to me and I'm sure it's of interest to others. Yeah. I, uh, my approach on it is to be really conservative and to keep it really simple. So uh, the whole reason why I even went down that path was that, you know, all of the commercial rodents that we get uh, are all fed on lab, you know, rodent diet that is engineered to get rodents up to breeding size and to keep them breeding and may not necessarily have everything that, um, you know, the snakes would really need. And so I just was thinking in terms of, you know, in the wild, when they're consuming prey, that prey is eating, you know, probably a lot of plant matter and insects. And those are two things that we're really not giving to our animals in captivity. If you're just feeding them straight lab, you know, or commercially raised rodents fed on lab chow. And um, so instead of like pinpointing uh, like a, a pure vitamin supplement, uh, what I've done is I've gone down the path of using um, the, the meal um, powders that are used for um, uh, geckos primarily, uh, like Rapashi type brand or Pangea. And uh, I've used several different uh, formulations. You know, I'll, I'll grab, you know, they'll have like specialty formulas. I've got one that has like mulberry leaf in it. Um, I, I grabbed the, uh, the one that's high in, in insect protein. And what's great is that they, they're a balanced diet meant to keep lizards alive. And um, they're not going to be overloaded with, you know, uh, calcium or vitamin D and that kind of stuff. You want to have yeah, everything kind of imbalanced. And, um, and what I do because it's powdered is you thaw your rodents out and the rodents are, are wet if you do it in water. And I just pat them, you know, to get most of the water off with a paper towel. And then what I'll do is I'll dip the rump 
of the uh, the rodent, the tail and the rump end into this meal powder. And, and then I just offer it directly to the snakes like that. And I've used that from everything from absolute newborns to adults. And I haven't had any adverse effects uh, from them doing it. Um, and I don't do it every feeding. I, I, you know, I mix it up a little bit. It'll be like every other feeding, maybe every third feeding, um, you know, but definitely not every feeding. And it's just enough to make sure that um, introducing something into their diet that they're not going to be getting otherwise mm-hmm. because of how we're forced to feed them these commercially raised rodents. Yeah, I, I think that's spot on, David. I, uh, you know, I in, earlier in my career, I sold lab rodent diet. And, and you're exactly right. Those rodent diets were developed for... Uh, large breeding operations for rodents for biomedical research. Yeah. And they were not developed to make prey items for reptiles. Right. And, and again, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, not every snake is the same. And the nutrition that a ball python needs may actually have some differences when it comes to micronutrients and minerals than a green tree python or let's say, a, a Corallus tree boa. And when you look at what they're eating in some place like Papua New Guinea versus what they're eating in the Amazon rainforest, mm-hmm. their prey might be slightly different based on what their prey is eating. Right. And so you end up with these nuanced differences. And I, uh, I think that supplementation is something I know you and me and, and Harlan have, have had some pretty deep conversations around nutrition and supplementation in the past. And I think that that's, that's an area that we have put as a community very little energy research technology into is nutrition as a whole for snakes. Yep. So there's been a lot more work done on nutrition for geckos and lizards and tortoises and mm-hmm. crocodilians, but not so much for snakes. Like there's this feeling like, well, if, if a, a mouse is good for one snake, a mouse is good for all snakes. And, you know, the same mouse is good for all snakes. And and even a mouse from one person is not the same as a mouse from another person. And so yeah. know, they might be feeding two different diets. Even They might even be feeding two different diets from the same manufacturer. And so there can be a lot of, a lot of difference and variation. Uh, one of the approaches I take is that's why I, I tend to feed a combination of mice, rats, and African soft furs. Mm-hmm. And partially because I think there's some differences in nutrition between those three species, but also... They come from, well, the rats and mice come from the same source, from cold-blooded cafe, but they feed them different diets. And the African softwares come from a totally different supplier. So I feel like I'm getting some variation there. But I love the idea of the supplementation. And, and you said you've done that with, like, um, new, like hatchling neonate snakes and with pinkies? Yeah, well, actually, I've even done it to where I've had babies that are not uh, willfully feeding on their own. And I, uh, I like using chopped up, um, or, you know, sections of mouse tail, uh, to keep them or, or kind of get them primed. And, uh, what I'll do is I'll dip half of that mouse tail into the powdered, um, you know, gecko diet. And then with the hairs pointing the right way, I'll, I'll put that into the snake's mouth so that he can't spit it out easily. And, and I figure I'm getting more nutrition into them than what just a simple section of a mouse tail would give them because there's, there's a lot of stuff that they pack into those gecko diets. And, um, and I would do that 
as I'm going through the the hassle of trying to get them to feed on their own and and uh, it worked out quite well. I had no issues with it and uh, the snakes, you know, uh, did quite well and were actually growing as I was feeding them that way. And then, you know, once they switch on to regular pinkies, um, you know, I get them onto that and I do the exact same thing. I dip the rump of the pinky in that powder. Um, you know, every couple of meals I, I would, you know, add that in and um, I've, I've seen zero side effects from it. How do, you, how do you go around the dosing? Is it just whatever powder sticks to the pinky and then as you go up in prey size for larger animals, it's just more powder for bigger prey yeah. item? Or? Yeah, it, that's how I do it. And also because it's not purely just a vitamin supplement, it's a it's a meal replacement powder. Yeah, I'm not overly concerned about overdosing on anything. Yeah, I never and also had because I'm not issues. doing it. I never had any problems with What's my geckos. When I when I was breeding crested, that's all I fed was Pangea, and I never had any issues with it either. I just had a bunch of really fat geckos. Yeah. Interesting. So it's not just a supplement; it's a meal replacement as well. So yes. it's actually got other nutrients to it in addition to just minerals oh, yeah. and, and vitamins and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those those Rapashi and Pangea diets are absolutely jam packed full of stuff to act as a a complete. Um, sustenance for those geckos they can live off of it and um so i figured you know when you're feeding them something that you know like a pinky which doesn't have a huge amount of nutritional value this is boosting it and you know as long as you're not doing a ton of it and every feeding i felt the risk was really low and um and you know all my animals did fine i had no issues uh, using that stuff whatsoever. I wonder if you found How, a smaller, like a small enough syringe, if you could go ahead and mix it up with the water and just like shoot some down the gullet. Of the mouse? It, yeah, and deliver it that way too. I mean, you could. It's just so easy to just dip it. Yeah. You know, it sticks to it because the mouse is wet. Right. Um, you know, I that's, that's how I did it with no problem. And what I like about them, too, is they have such a variety of these meal replacement powders. They, they have all kinds of interesting things that they've added to it. You know, like I said before, one of them it had mulberry leaf in it, which is super high in uh, nutritional value. Um, I also use the um, I forget what it's called. It's like uh, grub meal or something like that, where um, it's a gecko diet. But they've they've boosted the amount of um, insect content yeah, in the powder yeah, quite a bit. That's the one and I so I add lot. that. Yeah. And, uh, so I mix it up. I don't use just one. I, I have two or three on hand and, and I just decide which one I want to use at the time. And, and I'll dip the rump of the mouse, uh, in there and, and feed it off. And they seem to do just fine. How often are you doing that? Like, are you doing that every meal, every other no. meal, every third meal? Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I mentioned that earlier. They, it's like at a, at the most, it would be every other or to every third meal is when I'll do it. Okay. And have you found a particular source that's, that's best? I, I actually looked for some of that stuff at the last Repticon show that we had just locally here in Palm Beach County. Mm-hmm. And um, of course they had like all the other Rapashi products, but the ones that you were telling me about. So is there a particular source that you have found is, is better than another for finding that I, stuff online? I bought from Rapashi directly. I just bought from them online. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, maybe yeah. uh, it would be really cool to, to see some pictures or maybe a video of how you do it. Maybe 
the next time you do that, you could post something up and share some information about the specific products you use and a link. Sure. I'd, I'd love to to start with at least what you're doing as a baseline, and I'm sure other people might enjoy that information as well. You said you, you haven't seen any side effects. Have you seen any, even if just anecdotal benefits that you feel are noticeable or attributable? Um, not that I could like attribute to doing that. I mean, knock on wood, everybody's healthy and looks good. I'm getting good breeding activity. Um, the babies that I'm raising up are all healthy and doing well. Um, I, it's more of, I think variety is the spice of life. And if you can, you know, uh, add things periodically to kind of mix it up and make sure that they're not missing something nutritionally, it's, it's only going to help them. And I think by using a meal replacement powder versus a vitamin powder, um, you have um, a little more uh, margin of safety built in. Um, I, I feel like there's a lot less of a chance that you're going to overdose them on something by going that route. Yeah, because they mix the oh, right proportions sure. of, of what they need in those. Because, you know, if you give calcium, you have to have a certain ratio of phosphorus with it. Otherwise, that calcium doesn't get absorbed as much. Right. Yeah. So those Pangea and Rapashi diets are meant to where you don't have to worry about that. Like, it has the right levels of everything, and you're good to go. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check it out next time you do that. Post something up, and I'm gonna. Sure. At the very least, I think I'm gonna give it a shot with some animals. I think uh, I've been thinking a lot about that whole. I know <clears throat> it originally was a theory that Vladimir Rodachenko had, but I've heard Harley mm-hmm. tell the story about supplementing the adult females and that leading to to less prolapse of babies. And I know. Tinley a couple years ago now, maybe two or three years ago, and I got into a pretty in-depth conversation with Alan Rapashi at the show, and he said that um, Rico was playing around with some supplementation. And in particular, I have to go back and look at my notes, but I thought that he was talking about calcium with uh, neonates in particular. Mm. And so that really got me thinking because uh, not that it's, it's a common occurrence, but I think that green tree pythons definitely seem to be prone to prolapse and I've experienced it in my collection on a handful of occasions. And of course it sucks every time. And it's always an animal that you don't want that to happen to that. It does but not that you ever want it to happen to an animal, but you know how it goes. It's always yeah. your favorite or the rarest or the most valuable genetically or whatnot. But um, it's just one of those things that seems like it's, it's more than just a coincidence, right? Like there's, there's gotta be some causation there and, I don't know exactly what it is, but it certainly seems like a viable theory that maybe there's something going on. And I don't know about you guys, but, and I know I've talked about this on other podcasts in the past, but you know, like I still see, I see teeth in, in fecal matter and I see it on a, you know, an ongoing regular basis. And I can't say for sure that it's abnormal, but you know, I don't know if there's something there connected to, micronutrients or mineral content mm-hmm. and the rate of shedding of teeth or the, the frequency or how many teeth, but, um, you know, it definitely seems like nutrition is an area that we could, we could do some tweaking. I think we've, we've got a lot of other things with them dialed in pretty well. And that's one that I feel like we've barely hit the, the tip of the iceberg. I wonder, I wonder what Daniel Natush is doing these days and uh, if he's done any, 
stomach content research or if we could get him to 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 look at you know what species of prey are most prevalent and then maybe analyzing some of those to see if they have some weird calcium phosphorus ratio or like super high level of manganese or something like you know I wonder if there's something like that that we could even if we as a community have to raise a little bit of money to help fund it I wonder if there's some some knowledge gain that we could look at from the the prey side of things to tweak the the captive nutrition yeah I actually I corresponded with him a little bit just on that topic because I wanted to find out you know, he, he let me know what species of rat they're primarily eating in the wild. And then I, I did some research on that rat species to find out what is that thing eating in the wild. And, exactly. yeah. you know, what they what they found was, you know, those rats are primarily, you know, fruit and insect eaters. Um, so, you know, indirectly that the green tree pythons are getting some of that in their diet just because of what they're eating. Parakeet, which is yeah. what led me down that path of using the rapashi diets of you know introducing insect and um, plant matter into their diet that they wouldn't be getting from that lab chow oh i love it that's brilliant that's exactly that's the exact way that my brain was thinking about it yeah separated at birth <laughs> I don't know about that. Although I will say, you know, David's a pretty tall guy. Uh, I think what, what's been a couple of years now since the last time I saw you in person uh, yep. at uh, Eric Burke's place at Carpet Fest, and I got to meet you and your wife. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I uh, I wish there was a way for us to better understand nutrition and and the the pros and cons and the what's causing things that we're seeing that they're either not getting enough of or too much or too little, but then also the flip side of when you do all the things you're doing, you know, what is, what is the impact that that's having? And it sounds like you're not seeing anything that it's not hurting anything, but you're not necessarily seeing anything you can attribute to like, Oh, I saw an improvement in egg quality or growth yeah. rate or, you know, reduction. I mean, do you, have you seen have you seen any teeth in fecal matter? Have you experienced any prolapse in your collection or any of those things? Yeah, I I have seen both, and I think you know it's I think it's multifaceted, right? That it's not just one thing that contributes to those issues. I think it's multiple things altogether that contributes to it, and I think one of it. One of the major things you already touched on earlier is just the the sedentary nature of them in captivity that I think that's probably the most detrimental thing that we do to them is that we don't allow them the freedom to move around as much as they would in the wild. Um, but, you know, as far as supplementing, you know, things happen so slowly that it would be impossible for me to say, oh, yeah, because, you know, I started feeding this. I'm not seeing this anymore because problems are so infrequent and uh, clutches that are laid, you know, are very infrequent and all my animals are small. So my clutches are small. Um, you know, so far my fertility rate has been pretty high. Um, but you know, I couldn't possibly pinpoint any one thing that I'm doing that's contributing to any of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really hard, especially small sample size, short yep. periods of time, you know, single generations. It's it's really hard. I feel like 
that's one of the benefits that Vladimir had working at the farm was just numbers, right? Like, yeah, you, you could see the, the more numbers you have, just the more things you can see, whether they're you know, good or bad, but you can, you can really start to get some statistically significant data or at least have enough numbers that it's not like one off anecdotal. You can actually, yeah. Patterns or trends. My, my philosophy on the whole thing was, um, you know, Yes, you know, keeping snakes in captivity, you know, do they do well on, you know, lab chow raised mice and rats? Yes, you can you can raise a snake, breed it, reproduce. You can do all of that by not changing anything. Same goes with, you know, never seeing any UV light. Um, you know, they'll live and they'll do fine. But my my philosophy on it is that, you know, they are experiencing things a bit different in the wild you know they do get uv exposure of some degree they are getting a more varied diet than we give them in captivity so i just was you know of the mindset you know play it very conservative but try and give them a little bit of what they ordinarily wouldn't get in captivity um and just with the the mindset of you know at least i'm i'm giving them a little more than what they ordinarily would get and hopefully that translates to a longer, healthier life and maybe good, you know, reproduction. Um, it, it just, you know, maybe it's more of a peace of mind thing for me, but I feel like if I'm doing this, then I'm not potentially missing something, um, you know, if I wasn't doing that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I completely agree. Uh, I take a multivitamin every day. Uh, yep. I don't know if you do, but... <laughs> Right. You know, it's it's like on average what it costs like a nickel a day is what they figure and you know, like it's it's not gonna hurt you. I mean you're gonna probably pee most of it out, but right uh, on the off chance that, you know, I need a little extra zinc or whatever in my vitamin E or whatever it is that, that, that I need, at least I'm getting it and you look at, you know, the the zoo community or captive husbandry of animals in general every single species of animal that we keep in captivity that's on any kind of captive produced diet is supplemented. Yes. Your dog and cat food is supplemented. I mean, everything. And so it's a little bit odd sometimes when you think about the fact that we, even other reptiles, I mean, geckos get supplements, we have dragons get supplements, tortoises get supplements, iguanas get supplements. You know, why don't we give our snakes supplements? And, so I, I, to me, it just it makes perfectly good sense, and it gives you a little bit of that shotgun insurance approach of, if I am missing something, you know, here it is. I, I just feel like it would be nice if we understood a little bit more, you know, what some of those peaks and valleys were in the native diet, and and I think kind of to the point of of earlier, the rodents that we're giving them are probably not really equivalent to the rodents they're eating in the wild. Right. You know, my guess is that an average rodent in the wild is a lot leaner, a lot less fat, a lot mm-hmm. more muscle. Uh, you know, I think that we're probably feeding our snakes fat, lazy rodents, <laughs> and yep. that might be contributing to fat, lazy snakes. And, yeah, without a um, doubt. You know, I, I could give my kids nothing but McDonald's, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, and they would still grow and live and you know, they they probably wouldn't grow as well and they probably wouldn't live as long and they wouldn't be overall as healthy, but they would survive. 
you know, nutrition is one of those things that's just so long-term and chronic, it's, it's sometimes mm-hmm. really hard to, to quantify or capture, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, we shouldn't strive. And I think that's an area that we can probably do better than we're doing. And that's why I've gone to variety. I know, I know some guys, and it seems like it's a very polarizing topic, but some people, not just in the green street world, but in, I know other parts of the earlier world will feed chicks to give some, some varied diet. But I also think when you think about nutrient density, a bird or a lizard is a lot less nutrient dense than a mammal. Yeah. And so I, I see that as potentially having some advantage as a prey item, both in terms of giving it some variety, but also that, that density issue that we talked about earlier. So what are your guys' thoughts on that? Do either of you feed chicks at all? I don't. I tried to feed one of my cyania a chick, and oddly enough, it had zero interest in it, which was surprising because those things mm. are like grade A nest raiders. Like, they'll eat pretty much whatever they can tackle. But I ended up giving it to a, one of the corns. But I had another one that I had thought out, and I gave it to one of my brettles, and my brettles loved it. But I don't know. It's uh, I I keep them on hand, you know, for for babies. I need to order more because I think I fed off all the chicks I had. But I don't know. I mean, I'm like I've talked to Harlan about it, and I've talked to some other people, and uh, everyone complains, at least that I've talked to, that's fed them on a regular basis, complains about like runny stools. Yep. As a result, I didn't really notice that with any of mine. I didn't wasn't anything drastic like everyone sort of made it sound to be, but I'm not opposed to it. Yeah, I've never fed chicks, but I the same thing I've heard I've heard it it, it it's messy. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly keep chicks around for for pulling feathers off for scenting babies. Yeah. Um I know some people Harlan's one that uh, are very cautious and concerned about avian prey due to, you know, potential Crossover. pathogenic yeah, contaminants. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like psittacosis and avian chlamydia and some other things that are kind of nasty bugs that you don't really want to introduce necessarily. But um, I have wondered about that, though. Like, you know, maybe, maybe switching it up with some avian prey mixed in is not such a bad idea. I know uh, at one point I thought about looking at possibly, especially for younger animals, some of the the big commercial breeders and things like leopard geckos and bearded dragons when they have like B grades or C grades or culls or ones that are missing like arms or tails or things like that. But, you know, would that maybe be a, another prey source for, for little ones especially and then the concern was like well what about coccidia or what about cryptosporidium because a lot of those right. lizard colonies are notorious for having those kind of parasite issues so it's like uh, I don't know like so you fix the nutrition problem but you introduce some other issue so I, ne- I never really pursued that but at one point I was wondering you know maybe we should be thinking of other prey sources other than mm-hmm. mammalian. Yeah, no, I mean, if I ever get to a point, like, with this next batch of chondros, if I, you know, get eggs from them, uh, if I have extra phyllobates, dart frogs around, you know, if I have some that are being difficult, those, I mean, those froglets are, are totally the perfect size for a 
you know, a Hatchlink Andro. Oh, yeah. I would have no issues trying those out. I've got so many of them. I mean, they're reproducing so much that, you know, I can afford to use some of the feeders if I wanted to. That's horrible. You're producing so many of them. You're going to use them as feeder frogs. <laughs> Dude, they're, I got a trio, and that male in that tank is getting it done because just when I think that they're they're stopping, they ramp back up again. So uh, speaking of, of your frogs, did you ever end up getting any of those bromeliads from, from Cody and Pia? No, I forgot them again. Oh. But it sucks because then I needed some for a tank I built a couple weeks ago. And I was really contemplating, like, jetting down there and grabbing some, but all the COVID stuff and whatnot, I was like, nah, stay home. Well, you have to let me know the next time we, we connect. I'll, I'll bring you some. I uh, I was just talking to Billy the other day, and he was asking me about Vermilions as well. I guess he's getting ready to, to yeah, kind of build. He's been doing some stuff think... with his Pacillonotus cages. And I told him, I was like, Ian always has a ton. Hit him up because he's got them coming out of his ears practically. Oh yeah, and this time of year too, they're all puffing off. And I just started some. I, I started a couple new spots with those the smaller red ones that everybody likes. It's, those are the ones that everybody wants when I cut them back. So I'll have more of those hopefully by Daytona time, if there is a Daytona. Yeah, I like them a lot, man. They're they're cool plants. We were in Lowe's earlier, actually, and they, they started selling some of those Neo Regalia variety, which is surprising. I haven't seen them carry that kind before. I've always seen the ones that are, like, potted, that get huge. Yeah, he was telling me about, um, I can't remember the name of it now, on Instagram, I think it was, like, Florida Bromeliads or Bromeliad Florida, but some retailer or something that had a, a really good selection apparently online. I, I told him there's another place I'm familiar with called Tropiflora, which is a big nursery. But yeah, the the thing about bromeliads is even those neo regalia. I mean, there's some neos that are big as big as like a, a trash can lid. Yeah. And you know the yeah. ones that, that you guys want for the vivariums are are really like you know the super small varieties, and even some of the ones that I grow are just way too big and. The thing about bromeliads is once you get them going, like they they almost are just like weeds. Yeah, they don't you stop. Gotta you gotta hack them back constantly. That's why I always have so many to bring because it's like literally constant. You just gotta constantly prune them back. Yeah, because I mean, if I was smart, I'd just start holding on to all the pups and stuff I get from mine, and you know, cutting those and then selling selling those on eBay or something. Yeah, that was what Billy said to me. He's like, "How much do you sell bromeliads for?" I was like, well, I've never actually sold bromeliads, but I'm sure we could work something out. So, too bad I'm not looking for carpet python. Billy's getting all kinds of cool stuff, man. Billy's got, he's got it all. Yeah. Well, we'll have to, uh, I've got some other stuff going on here besides the screen trees that we'll have to talk about. I think maybe we'll save that for, uh, an episode of THP with uh, with Jake, but it's uh, it is always fun to dabble in other species. You know, yeah. sometimes just because you're you're doing good at one thing doesn't mean that you can't you can't try and experiment mm-hmm. with other things. So uh, uh, variety's the spice of life. Yeah, uh, amen to that. I've well, gone. Speaking of which, what else what else do you have going on over there at your place, David? I never see you post anything else other than condors. I know that's why I'm doing this room expansion. So I can actually branch Ooh. out a little bit. What's what's in the works for the expansion? 
Well, I you mean animal wise or yeah. I, you know what? I've had my eyes on uh, green tree monitors for a while, and I may at some point try snagging a pair. Hell we'll see. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would be that would be super cool. I mean, it and kind of fits in with the whole condor thing, right? Same part of right. the world, same habitat. Yep. Similar. I mean, some of them come from even the same localities, right? Aren't some of the greens from Bioc? They are. Yeah. So super yep. cool. I know. Uh, so Forrest had a pretty sizable tree monitor collection, and, and Desiree and Stephen have kept it going. I don't know if you follow them and and what they're doing at all, but they've got these really awesome cages. I think also built by Doug uh, Bars, but these these really cool monitor cages, and they did them all up internally. With uh, some of them are more naturalistic than others, but they seem to really be taking well to to those types of setups and. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I see David as being like an Abronia guy. <laughs> no, I, don't, I won't be able to keep the room cool enough. I don't know. That just seems like something that'd be up your alley. Yeah. I've had a lot of stuff in the past. I, you know, I'm, I'm totally focused on green trees right now, but you know, you get that eye wandering and, you know, I, I've actually been thinking about dart frogs again too. I used to have those yeah. in the past and, I had chameleons, all kinds of different things. So, but I've never had green tree monitors, so I may go down that path. We'll see. I wish I had the space and time for them, man. Is they're cool? Yeah. I, just, I know I don't. I don't have anywhere to put them, and I don't have the time yep. to socialize them and keep them from being terrorists. And yeah, those but... cages that that they've got there, I want to say they're like maybe four foot wide and like six feet tall and two foot deep. So they're, yeah. they're really sizable. And then they've got like some mesh cutouts on the top that they put um, UV lights and heat lights on. Mm-hmm. And then he got, he got this like naturalistic material that he lined the inside of the cage. It looks kind of like tree bark or mm-hmm. some of them look like more like rockscape. He went down, um, I can't remember the name of the place, but it's in Texas. He went down there with uh with Brian Barczyk, and that's where Brian got all of his, like, cage material stuff from. It's a company in Texas that does it. I think it's all, like, formed on, on, you know, some kind of casting material. I don't know exactly how they do it, fiberglass or plaster or combination. But uh, they're really sweet setups, and they're sizable. So, like, I think he's got a pair. I mean, he's, he's got a bunch of different varieties, but I think one pair could be housed in that kind of setup. Not not too dissimilar to like those big setups that uh, Cody and Pia had uh, at Carpet Fest. Dustin. Yeah, that'd be the right size. I mean, that'd be the size I'd be using for something like that. Yeah, at a yeah. minimum. I've also been tempted I'll to get some beaded lizards lately too. If I had the space Ooh. for some beaded, I'd probably get those. I got a buddy up in Charleston who has some he wants to part with. You know, part of the problem too is that you get so spoiled by green tree pythons. God damn, they're easy. You know, it's like they go to the bathroom hardly ever, and you don't have to feed them that often. And the thought of yeah. having lizards again is—it's like the polar opposite of that. You know, yeah. so I'm like, do I really want to get into that again? Or you know, totally. I I completely get you. We we have a rule currently. And like you, David, I've kept a lot of different stuff over the years. But right now, and oh, I'm trying to think what it was, but just recently, 
my wife and kids were talking about something, and I can't remember what it was, but I, I, I nixed it really quick. Because <laughs> our, our rule is, like, nothing that needs food and water daily and nothing, right. that, needs, nothing that eats bugs. Because yep. with, with my travel schedule, it, it's difficult if it's something that needs food and water daily. And the same thing with bugs, because either you have to order, like, 500 or 1,000, and then you have to have a tub, you got to set them up, and water and inevitably when you feed crickets to anything in the house you always end up with crickets loose in the house so like bugs is just like a whole nother ball game and then if, they, if you have something that only needs like 50 crickets a week or 100 crickets then you gotta go to the store regularly and you gotta have a routine of like what day did they get the small crickets in or what day did they get the big crickets in it's, I don't know it's like the idea of having to balance everything else I have going on in life with an animal that needs food and water daily other than the dog or something that needs bugs. I, I just, at this point in my life, it's like more than I'm willing to commit. That's it. You've talked me out of it. <laughs> more, like, more green tree pythons. I guess that's why darts for me are like, I draw the line too. It, if it has legs, I kind of don't want it anymore unless it's a dart frog. And that's just because, you know, you if, if you time the cultures right, you don't have to worry about running out of flies. Like I have all the supplements. Yeah. I just I missed my tanks like two or three times a week. I really don't miss mine probably as much as I should. But um, I mean they're they're pretty low maintenance for a, a legged animal. Yeah, I feel like if dart frogs would eat like a prepared diet, they would honestly be perfect for me because I love the idea of doing like a terrarium or a vivarium. Yeah. Which is, it's all the the bromeliads I have outside, just like in a cage. Um, I think that's why probably things more like some of the like the fruit eating geckos are more appealing to me because it's like, mm. well, then I don't have to worry about flies or worms mm-hmm. or bugs or, you know, whatever. But, um, but see, I've gone the other way. I, I started keeping more arboreal species of snakes because they, they, they meet all of my other criteria. But I'll tell you that similarly, David, some of the other arboreal species of snakes are much more high maintenance than condors. Yeah. Yeah. The only species so far that I would say are as low maintenance or even maybe lower maintenance than condors are emeralds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because an emerald is about as close as you can get to having a pet rock and it, it's not being <laughs> a rock. Like, I mean, they just, if a condor is slow, like an emerald is like pause. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like they just, they're, they're, their metabolism, I swear, is like, I'm like, are you still alive? Are you are you breathing? <laughs> Just like frozen rigmortis on the lately, like, So I, I do like my emeralds, and I've got quite a few of them. But um, sometimes I kind of feel like they're like a condor's like like wanna be half cousin. Like, but um, but they definitely are low maintenance. Of all the corallus I keep, like they are definitely the lowest maintenance, and and they are like condors in that regard, like super low maintenance and. And that's the thing about green trees is they kind of spoil you after a while because mm. they they really are super easy to keep. Once you have them dialed in, like I know people think of them as being delicate and quote unquote hard to keep, but I think that's just, it's, it's hard to acclimate or hard to get them to adjust or people just starting with import animals that are problematic. But the truth is in terms of like the routine, regular maintenance, I mean, there's not really a whole lot to it. I mean, adult chondro eats, what, once, maybe twice a month? Right. So it poops, like, once, maybe twice a month? Give it some fresh water, clean its cage, spray it down a few times? Like, it, 
it's, it's the perfect pet, really. Yeah, they are easy. And they're always out. That's right. It's true. They, they are a good display animal. Um, I will tell you, like, I, I have thought about, and I know this might pain people's ears to, to hear, but, like, I have thought about, like, you know, maybe dabbling with, like, a, a, a bioactive enclosure, like, more of a display for the enclosure and the plants and everything, and trying it with a, a chondro, like, as more of a display sort of thing. Not Probably not an animal that I would breed or something. Maybe maybe I'll try it with, like, the one in my son's room or something. But just something a little more naturalistic that made it more interesting to look at. Yeah, another one with that. I think, you know, the whole bioactive stuff, I think if you're just getting into chondros, you should stick to the tried and true methods until you really get to know their husbandry and have it nailed down. And then if you want to start experimenting with more elaborate enclosures, by all means, go for it. Yeah, I think that what people don't realize is that when you go to those elaborate enclosures, it's almost like you have to get the enclosure up and running and established before you introduce the snake. Right. Because the biggest concern I have actually, because years ago I played around with keeping pothos in with some of my adults. And the problem I had actually was that the snakes trashed the plants. They mm. just destroyed them, like knocked them over, broke leaves, yeah. broke stems, like pooped all over them, urated all over them. Like the plants were just not happy. And I think that the snakes were probably, it probably gave the snakes a little bit extra enrichment and, you know, maybe had, you know, some other effects of, of aiding with humidity or whatnot. But more than anything, I just found that o over time, the snakes just beat the crap out of the plants. Yeah, I had to take that one out of the out of that Python portal setup, David, because that male kept on basically... Trashing it. He pulled the plant out, like out of the soil. I guess it wasn't... <laughs> buried good enough and I I'd fix it and then I'd come back in the next morning and it'd be right back where it was and I'm like you son of a bitch so I finally just dug it out I, gotta let it root, I gotta let it root better before I put it in there apparently yeah I, I saw when you posted that video and I kind of chuckled to myself because like I know Cody keeps you know a piece of pothos like in, in almost every one of his water yeah, bowls and that's and what I've been doing but got. I was like I'm gonna try this and yeah and, and when I saw you do that, I was like, you know, that's a really great idea. You know, use that water bowl holder for a plant. And then I saw you do it, and I was like, yeah, I wonder how long that lasts until, yeah. like, that dirt's all over the floor, and the yep. plant is, like, popped out of the holder, yep. and, and it's, like, you know, muddy in the water bowl. And, like, not a day or two later, you posted something like, oh, yeah, I knocked it over. And I was yep. like, yeah, I was kind of worried about that. See, Luke's been doing it, though. Luke's the one who had the idea of using that that water bro holder for that and I don't think he's had that problem but I think he also let his root in real good for a couple of weeks before he put it in there so. yeah well you know I I can't remember exactly when it was but I, I posted something that was probably like two or three months ago now but it was a picture of a snake and I was really you know trying to capture something about the snake and and my wife, as you guys probably know, does all of our like real photography, like the really nice pictures and like all the crappy cage pictures or, or all my iPhone pictures. And so I took a picture of something in a cage and of course I had newspaper in the background because I use newspaper in all my adult cages and and when I posted it or shared it in one of the Facebook groups, I got like a, a comment. I guess I didn't realize it at first, but like someone wrote like nice setup, right? And I was like, Oh thanks, you know, thumbs up or whatever. 
And then I realized later on that it was it was a European keeper, and he was actually being sarcastic. Oh yeah, I've gotten because, that a lot on Instagram with the pictures yeah. of the yeah. tub setups. They're like, "Who yeah. keeps snakes that way?" I'm like, "Well, exactly, blasphemy. exactly." And like, you know, here, like blasphemy. Like I'm keeping them on newspaper. Like how horrible. <laughs> and and sometimes I do think, like, man, like it would be really nice if instead of having a bunch of cages with newspaper in them and you know, burnt PVC perches if, if it was like a vivarium and it was beautiful and full of plants and everything else. And then I think like, man, that would be such a pain in the ass though. Like, like that, you know, one big bowel movement and it's just like a disaster that like, how do you clean that up? And, you know, the snake just rooting through all that. And, and I think about having to keep the plants happy and the lighting and the moisture. And I start thinking about all that and I'm like, yeah, I'll just stick to growing my bromeliads outside there. A lot happier out there, <laughs> but uh, but I do know that there's there's big schools of thought that keeping animals the way we do in plastic cages on newspaper is like, you know, it's, it's not doing the animals justice. And so I do I do get it. Like I have that desire. I wish that it was it was more realistic to do that. But it's it's hard when you have a big collection to do that kind of thing. I think there is no right answer when it comes to that. If you want to keep them in a vivarium, go ahead. If you don't, don't. Oh, I completely agree. I think that the the idea or the concept or mindset that there's a right and wrong way to keep conjurers, I think the only right and wrong way to keep conjurers is there's either the way that it works where they stay alive or there's the way where they, they die, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think lots of ways to skin a cat, you know, lots of ways to keep conjurers. Um, I don't think that there's there's a lot of wrong ways to keep a conjurer successfully. I think if you're if the condor is happy and you're meeting all of its basic needs, then you know you do you. If if it's in a natural vivarium, awesome. I think you know for me, I'm not a big fan of glass cages, but some people are really successful with glass cages. Um, I like back heat in my racks. Some people do great with belly heat or side heat in their racks. I I don't think that there's a wrong and right way. I just think there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different ways that work. Agreed, agreed, agreed. But we are yep. at about two and a half hours. Oh wow! Yeah, that went by fast. It did. So I, I want to circle back on on one thing that we touched earlier, and I, I made myself a note that I wanted to remember to mention it. Um, when we were talking about babies earlier, and you were talking about feeding mouth tails, David. Yeah. Um, so I have never. Uh, fed a lot of mouth tails. I uh-huh. generally, when I have stubborn babies, I usually go to pinky heads, as I found that that works fairly well. Um, yep. Not that there's anything wrong with mouth tails. I just, for me, I just haven't gone that route. But I was in Texas for the Arlington show this spring, and I was shown another trick. And so I wanted to share that with you guys and with the listeners, but I want to give credit where credit's due. So it was Patrick Holmes. And so... I think we we're actually talking about baby uh, Amazon tree boas, Corral Sortolanus. And he was telling me that he prefers to use mouse legs. And I was kind of like, mouse legs? Like, what do you mean? And so he showed me, and he actually takes, if you think about kind of like what a chicken thigh looks like when you buy it at the grocery store, you know, it's kind of like from the hip bone, like down to the ankle, so to speak. So it's kind of like the knee joint and then the meat on either side of the knee. 
And so what he does is he'll take that, that leg off of like a weanling, medium to large-ish size mouth. And then he peels the skin back and he uses the bone that's between the knee and the ankle. So I don't know what that's called in the, the leg of a mouth, which bone it is. So I don't think it's the femur. Um, but he uses that bone to kind of pry the jaw open or the mouth open a little bit. And then it's got that big chunk of meat from the knee to the thigh. Oh, interesting. So it's getting, yeah. it's getting that little bit of bone, but the bone kind of acts as the tool to open the mouth. And then the whole thing just kind of slides in and he just gets it in past the knee and then lets them go. And then they, they eat, you know, it's like a fist feed and then they take the rest of it on their own. And it's kind of tapered in that way, you know, like it's really narrow and then it gets wider yeah. It's hard for them to throw it out. It slides right in. It takes two seconds. They get that chunk of bone as well as the meat. And I had never seen it done before, but he showed me, he demonstrated it, and I was like, that's freaking brilliant. I love it. And so I just thought it was a really good trick that I had never seen. And kind of to the point we made earlier, I, I'm really all about putting more of these tricks and tips out there and, and sharing the knowledge and what works for people because I think, you know, it helps pass it along. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to give credit to Patrick, but I thought that was a really cool trick and, and maybe that'll help some people out with neonates going forward. And I think, uh, that's something I might try in the future. Yeah. Same here. I'll definitely give that a shot. Yeah. I'm, I'll have to reach out to him and see if maybe he can share some pictures or video of it, but it was really slick. And, uh, I, I really got to tell you, it was the trick of having that little bit of bone Mm. past the knee that kind of acts as like like popping open the, the, yeah, the, like a little the top of a can exactly. little pry bar it's just, exactly and it just works so perfect and you know I don't generally go to assist feeding unless I have runners but you know if I've got some runners that's that's a trick right there that I'm, I'm going to probably you know try to use in the future so mm -hmm. big shout out to Patrick he's, he's always got tricks and up his sleeve when it comes to conjures, but uh, I, I really like that one, and I think that's one that, that might be helpful to people. That's awesome. I like it. Yeah. Where can people find you if they aren't um, watching so people you can find me. Yeah, people can obviously find me all over. Uh, one other thing I want to mention um, also, and I, I don't know, Justin, if I said this ahead of time, but I wanted to mention it, but I wanted to mention about something that Joe Phelan's putting together. You guys are aware about this yes. uh, CritterCon Live he's doing? Yeah, I meant to mention that at the beginning of the episode. Thank you. All right. Well, is it cool if I, if I give that a shout-out yeah, yeah, real yeah. quick? Check it out. So kind of what we were talking about earlier about, like, the new normal and what's the reptile world going to be like, especially with shows, something I haven't really thought about, but all of the people that are out there in the reptile community that do outreach and educational programs are, are pretty much sidelined at the moment because you have to imagine there's, there's no schools to go do presentations at. There's no birthday parties to do presentations at. There's no uh, herb society meetings. There's no shows every weekend. So all these people that um, that's what they do is educational events. They're pretty much out of business right now. And, um, and, and not just in the fact that they're out of business, but then there's no content for kids and, and a lot of what they do is, is reaching children and kids and the next generation of reptile keepers. And so Joe Phelan, who's a big member of our community, I'm sure you guys know Joe. Uh, I don't know if we're allowed to mention other podcasts on your show. but Of course. <laughs> Joe, 
Joe does another podcast uh, from the ground up, and he's from Port City Pets. So Joe has put together this event that's coming up called CritterCon. And what he did is he got four big name presenters. So it's uh, Emily at Snake Discovery, Crosstown Exotics, Roaming Reptiles, and Coal Black Exotics. And they're going to put together, it's on May 2nd at 5 p.m. Eastern, and it's going to be four presentations. I believe each one is like 20 or 25 minutes, so it's over 100 minutes of content. And it's all going to be uh, up on the web. It'll be live and then recorded for people afterwards. And it is a ticketed event, so it's $5 uh, a ticket, but that's for a whole household or however many people you're quarantined with and mm-hmm. can sit around the computer with. But I think it's a really good cause to help support the folks um, that do education. I think it's a great event for the kids. So I told Joe that we definitely want to get involved. So SNJ Reptiles is going to be a sponsor of the event. I know my kids will be watching. They're huge fans of Emily's at Snake Discovery. But I think it's something that's great for, for other kids that are out there that are cooped up, getting a little bit of cabin fever. And it's just another way for us to support each other and give back and for those of us that are fortunate enough to, to be able to, you know, support these people that, that right now are, are not able to go out and do what they do. And I think that education is a really important part of what we do as a community. It's, it's how we get kids involved in the hobby. It's a way that we give back from a conservation standpoint. And so I, I want to support Joe and, and what they're doing. So check it out. It's called CritterCon. It's going to be May 2nd at 5 p.m. Eastern. And those, there's information on Facebook, on Instagram, on YouTube. The tickets are available through Eventbrite. And uh, please, uh, if you're able to uh, support that event, I think it's a really good cause. It's very cool that people are doing that. There's also a uh, like a virtual reptile expo recently too, which I thought was pretty cool. Like they had people do presentations, sort of similar, and I guess they just gave everyone like the admin ability to the page so they could go live when there were their their slot came around pretty neat yeah i think it's going to be interesting to see as a community how do we adapt to to more of a virtual platform um you know will we see more of a resurgence in forums or in websites um or it it feels a little bit like we're seeing a lot more people go to youtube um you know more like video formats even similar to i saw uh you're doing the the Snakes and Stogies episode now almost like a Zoom meeting. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it had, that was the had first like four time or five that. of you guys on it. And I was like, oh, do they always do it that way? Like, no. I, I didn't remember seeing that format before. And, you know, I thought that was really cool. I, I thought it was funny when someone said it was like the Brady Bunch. So um, <laughs> I'm not even going to ask who the mom and who the dad was or any of that. Like, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I thought that was really cool. So it'll be interesting. Like, will we see as a community, you know, yeah. Will we move to that more of that kind of platform? Will Will Southeast Carpet Fest 2021 be a Zoom meeting instead of a you know, <laughs> in person? I don't know. I, I think um, you know the technology is really cool and you can do a lot with it, but there are certain things like you can't see a whole bunch of animals in person and and hold them and touch them and take pictures of them and mm-hmm. and observe them over 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 the web the way you can in person and. You can't sit around a campfire and drink beers and talk reptiles and geek out with people, you know, the same way you can. And 
you know, I think it's it's a good way for us to stay connected during this time, but I, I hope it's not a replacement because it doesn't feel like it's, it's quite the same. It's not the same. Nope, it's oh. not. But hopefully okay. we'll, we'll be back to some sense of whatever the new normal is soon enough, though. Only time will so. tell. <clears throat> but definitely appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, it was fun. I appreciate you having me. Uh, it was good to talk to you, both you guys. And, yeah, same uh, here. Well, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. And like I said, I got other species to talk about uh, sometime on uh, THP. And when we get done with the, this, I'll have to go uh, downstairs and check for some eggs. Maybe I'll probably <laughs> wait. That would be nice. Although she'll probably wait till I go to sleep. It's my guess. Of course. Yep. Naturally. <laughs> so, but, uh, all right. So Justin, to your, your point before, if people want to find me though, uh, SNJ reptiles, they can find us on, well, we're everywhere these days on social media. So Facebook, Instagram, we've even been updating our website and we're also now on TikTok because I understand from my nine-year-old daughter that only old people use Facebook and cool kids don't use Facebook because that's for old people and cool kids use TikTok apparently. Um, that's what she says to me. Uh, she says, sup. That's how, instead of saying, what's up, they just say, sup now. Uh, I'm like, what's up is, is not short enough. You have to abbreviate the abbreviation. So, uh, so yeah, we're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, website. Um, any of those platforms you can find us and uh, feel free to reach out. We're also on Morph Market. We are sold out of 2019 Green Tree Pythons, unfortunately, but I do have some 2020s that I'm establishing that'll be ready probably another month or two, but I'm going to put those up on Morph Market and start taking deposits probably in about another week or so, but hopefully we will have some 2020s available later this year after those. And still have a few Amazon Tree Boas 2019s also still available. So if you're looking to add anything, hit me up. uh, Check out our Morph Market page. Sounds good. David? Yeah, so you can reach me on Facebook, uh, either under my name or Specialty Enclosure Designs. And and also at my website, SpecialtyEnclosureDesigns.com. All right, y'all. Later. Appreciate it. Ian, I'm sure I'll talk to you shortly. I'm going to send you all the links and stuff. Sounds good, guys. Have a good day. Later, guys. Later. Bye. Alrighty, y'all. That was episode 23 of the Conjurecast. As usual, you can find this show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. You can follow me at Palmetto Coast Exotics on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, You can follow the show the Contracast on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, who knows when the next episode will be. And I hope this holds you over for now. See you later.